Live. This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh, he broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast featuring New York Sports Talk and a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. We are in week number three of the social distancing era of the podcast, home, recording from the mobile studio, but the show will still go on. We have some stuff to talk about. I am going to be doing a giant off-season episode today. We're going to take us from two different angles. First up, I will be joined by the Giants beat report for The Athletic, Dan Dugan. Dan and I will be talking about the giant offseason, some of the big issues they had, some of the signings they've made, how they're doing in general. Then we're going to go to the fan perspective. We are resurrecting the fan forum, which hasn't been heard from a little bit on this podcast. And we're joined by two giant fans, Phil Freyetta, Justin Diaz. We will talk about how they're feeling about the team, about how they're feeling about Dave Galvin, Joe Judge, Daniel Jones, the signings, what they might do in the draft, all that good stuff. This week, we're also doing our pop culture hit as usual. We are going into the world of Westworld this week, season three. We are going to be three episodes into the season. I'll be joined by our pop culture correspondent, Sandra Rosa, to break down Westworld so far, make some predictions of what's coming up. Also, get some tips on, from her on what she's keeping up with in the coronavirus stay-at-home era. But we'll start this week's opening tip, where I weigh in on some of the measures that MLB is considering to implement when they restart the season. It sounds like they have some plans. I have my thoughts right after this. Baseball is looking at a lot of dates right now, but the target at the moment is in early June. The idea is that players would go back around mid-May for a second kind of spring training, that that would be an abbreviated one, you know, two, two and a half weeks, and that because pitchers wouldn't be ramped up, they would expand the rosters and go back and play games. We don't know if it would be in front of empty stadiums. We don't know if fans would be there. They would love, though, to start the season in early June while recognizing that July ultimately may be the likelier and better time to begin the season. All right, we are back with this week's opening tip. You guys heard ESPN's Jeff Passan describing the plans that baseball has to try and begin its season. And early, later last week, they put out an agreement between the owners and the players. Some key issues being resolved for their plan to potentially come back from a coronavirus stoppage. So let's start here with the main points. Baseball won't start its season as of right now until there are no restrictions on mass gatherings that would limit the ability of teams to play without fans. That's the first point. And it surfaced that does not sound good because obviously you're thinking, you know what, like the government just extended its guidelines for social distancing until April 30th. We're already getting there. Who knows when we're going to hit the peak of this virus and see it go down. You think it's going to probably calm down again before stuff goes out, but at this point, that is the initial plan. The Fisher has said, the Players Association echoed this, there are still options to discuss neutral site games and games without fans. There can't be travel restrictions in the United States and Canada, which is, I think, the more important issue if you want to worry about starting a baseball season because obviously right now 
There are travel restrictions in New York. The CDC has imposed a strong do not travel advisory for the tri-state area. Other areas start getting more of their own coronavirus issues. So you're thinking, you know what, like, at what point is domestic travel safe? And before that happens, there's not going to be any baseball. So that's a big issue, especially with Canada involved as well with the Blue Jays, because if this was just the domestic travel, like the NFL would not be as major of an issue. But when you talk about now, you got two countries involved. You have the coronavirus dealing with two different issues. The U.S. and Canada currently have their borders closed for non-essential travel. That's an issue you got to work through. This one's obvious. Medical experts have to deem it safe for players, staff, and or fans to participate in baseball games. This is a kind of, well, duh. We are in a world where, you know what, they're not going to do things like open the movie theaters or open sporting events if it's not safe for the spread of the virus to continue. Until that happens, we're not getting baseball. This is the encouraging thing. Teams want to play as many games as possible. Add some double headers, extend the season in October with neutral site playoffs possibility. I think the calendar is open for pure baseball. I mean, you could play games in the Northeast probably through the end of October because the end of October is in the 50s. You could probably get away with that. Neutral site playoffs, I think, is possible for the World Series because if you're getting around Thanksgiving, you're only playing baseball in, like, let's say, Yankee Stadium. If it's 45 degrees out during the day and 29 at night, you don't want that. Neutral site makes sense. There, the schedule, as far as I'm aware, it's going to be very hard for them to redo an entire schedule it's because teams have dates booked in terms of state availability. There's hotel considerations made. You can't just make the schedule from scratch right now and just start over. The general sense is that they would kind of pick up the schedule where the season starts. So if they're going to start the season on June 15th, June 15th's games would be opening day for better or for worse. They could throw double headers on to like some game. Let's say you're playing a divisional opponent. Like, let's say you're playing the Bra- the Mets are playing the Braves, and they're coming to City Field. They could play a double header on a Sunday or something to make up a game that they lost earlier in the year. You could also have the possibility of you know pushing the regular season to October a couple of weeks, and say you know what the rest of the games you're missing in April and May because let's be real, they're not starting in May. The restrictions right now go up to April 30th. Even if everything is given the go-ahead by then, you still have to get these players into shape. The original timeline that passing and talked about at the beginning there about, oh, mid-April, like not mid-April, mid-May, players get together, start having a camp, and then early June is the ideal scenario. The more likely option is that late May we're getting players into camps mid-June, early July when the season starts. They play July, August, September, October regular season and have expanded playoffs in November. There are also some financial ramifications of this deal the size struck. The players' biggest concession here is get a full year of service time, even if the season is canceled. Why is this important? Your players like your Mookie Betzes, your JT Real Muto, your Marcus Stroman, they're all becoming free agents, even if we don't play a game this year. And this also moves along the players in the arbitration process. So, like, any of your second-year guys who become arbitration eligible for the first time, get there without having to play a game if there is no season. That's a huge win for the players, just because like that's something in the millions and millions of dollars being gained by these players. There's a transaction freeze right now. So as of this deal being done, teams can't sign players, 
make trades or roster moves. So that's why you saw teams optioning players to AAA or AA over the weekend just to get within roster requirements. That means that, like, if you're a free agent out there right now, if you're Yasiel Puig, if you're Matt Harvey, you're not getting a contract right now until the freeze is lifted. Arbitration process can be modified to reflect a shortened or postponed season because, remember, arbitration stuff, it's all counting stats. A lot of it's like, how many wins did you get as a pitcher? How many saves did you get as a closer? How many home runs did you hit if you're a position player? That obviously will be impacted by if we're playing 100 games as opposed to 162. So that's going to be weighed in. Sort of like, a, I would assume more of a projected out base. Like, if we had played 162 games at your current production, you would have done this and had that factor into your arbitration number. The players have been advanced $170 million in salary, which is just 4% of total payrolls, and they will be paid on a prorated basis if the season plays as a shortened year. The only thing the players guarantee is $170 million. That's across all 30 teams. That's just 4% of the total payrolls in the sport. If we don't play another game this year, that's all they get. If we get some games down the stretch, instead they play 100, they would pay a prorated portion of their salary. So they'll pay, be paid a 100-game portion of the salary. Players have agreed not to sue for lost wages in the scenario, which, again, common sense. You all look like billionaires and fighting millionaires over money when a lot of people are out of jobs and seeking unemployment. That's a common sense thing. The interesting thing also here is the draft. The draft, as in pushback, can go back no later than July 20th. Rob Manfred can shorten it to as few as five rounds this year. Regularly, the draft is 40 rounds. They are doing it potentially as few as five rounds to help the team save some cash. Undrafted players can't receive signing bonuses of more than $20,000. Drafted players also only get $100,000 of their signing bonuses this year. The rest they split into two payments in 2021 and 2022. The international free agency signing period also be pushed back from July until January 2021 to run through December 2021. All of these things start to add up to the idea that the thing we talked about back in November about the potential contraction of about 42 minor league teams, I think that's a lock now. They're going to cut back on the amount of talent coming into the minor leagues. They're going to cut out some of the unprofitable things. This is organization to try and save some money. That's something that's going to happen. Also of note, anyone who has a steroid or a drug suspension will have it served in 2020 if no games are played. So your Michael Pinedas of the world who are serving steroid suspensions, they will get the credit for time served if the year doesn't play. They will be back to full strength in 2021. More draft stuff of note. Teams can't trade draft picks or slot money right now. I guess it's designed to encourage teams to not just take advantage of ones that are less better off financially. The 2021 draft also going to be shortened to at least 20 rounds if Rob Manfred deems it necessary. Those are the big financial implications of this deal. There's a lot of moving parts here. And a lot of these things will have an effect on the new CBA, which is the contract expires after 2021. These things will have a direct ramification on the next deal. And you would think maybe with this time off, once things get back up, maybe you'll see the players and the owners get to the negotiating table, try and secure some labor peace because... They're already losing a lot of revenue, and you're not going to want to risk the the bad will of the public of, you know, here we go. We just lost a significant portion of the 2020 season because of the coronavirus situation, and 2022, we're going on strike because we can't agree on a labor deal. I think you're getting labor peace out of this, which is a long-run positive for the whole thing. 
as far as this season concerned, I think it's clear at this point. Nobody knows anything. We really don't. It's still in a day-by-day period. All these things they're planning on are all well and good, but it is pointless to speculate right now. Until we have more information on this, until more people get tested for this virus and we know how wide it's spread and how long it takes people to recover and our healthcare system isn't being overwhelmed like it is right now. None of these things are going to matter for any of these sports. We kind of have to go one day at a time, see what the day gives us, get to the next day before worry about, you know, how many games teams are playing in July, August, if you even have games. I don't, I think it's pointless to try and predict a date. I also think it's pointless to predict that we're not going to have sports. We don't have it right now. We're not having it for the immediate future. I think the clearest path to action here is just, you know, let's wait and see. One day at a time. We will eventually get sports back. Sports are not gone forever. It could be as early as June. Could be as late as July, August. Could be beyond that. That's the thing that's scary to people because we have no blueprint for this. It's not like a snowstorm when, okay, we are out of action for a day or two and then we're back. Or... Even something like a hurricane where you're impacted for a brief period of time. There is no end date right now. We have to do what we're doing. It will work eventually. We will be back to normal eventually. Doctors are out there doing great things, trying to find vaccines for this drug, trying to find treatments to help people who are sick right now. That's our priority. Everything else that's fun will come back. But until then, we're kind of in a holding pattern. Baseball at least has recognized some of the issues it has, which is good. Hopefully soon enough we'll be actually talking about how these things impact the players on the field as opposed to just speculating on when we're getting sports back. Those discussions for another day. But up next, we will talk some New York Giants football with Dan Dugan of The Athletic right after this. They're coming after Jones. And a touchdown to Linden to Caden Smith. And Daniel Jones... Along with Barkley, career days today. Barkley, 190 rushing yards. And Jones, a five-touchdown afternoon. Five of them. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. We're talking some New York Giants football today. Joining me on the line is the Giant beat reporter for The Athletic, Dan Dugan. Dan, welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Mike? Doing pretty good, doing the best we can to stay safe, socially distanced, and all that stuff. So it's nice to get people distracted and talk a little New York Giant football. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit about this offseason. I mean, this all kind of started back in January when they hired Joe Judge as the new head coach. Like, what was your take on the hire, and do you like it to this point? I mean, like everybody else, uh, my first uh, reaction was who? You know, it certainly, uh, you know, he wasn't a household name, and when you the list of candidates they were going to interview for the position came out. You know, he certainly wasn't, you know, penciled in as a favorite. Um, but, you know, as, as obviously I got to know him, the rest of the world did, uh, I think he was very impressive in that opening press conference, which I think a lot of times that can be overblown. But for a guy like him, who was, you know, really an unknown quantity, um, he had to go out and, and project a really strong image. And, and I think he did that. I mean, that will only carry you so far. But, you know, you only make a first impression once. And I, I think he made a strong one. Um, yeah, it was so so early. We're totally in the honeymoon period. Everyone kind of thinks their new coach is is going to be Vince Lombardi at, at this stage. Um, but you know, I I, you know, I think he seems to have a plan, and I like sort of the fact that 
the Giants went outside the box here. So I think, you know, one of those things that this franchise has sort of probably hurt itself with is kind of playing things safe and sometimes sticking to, you know, what's comfortable. I mean, this is definitely uh, a risk that they're taking. You know, 38-year-old guy who's never been a head, time, uh, head coach. But uh, I think that, you know, sometimes no risk, no reward. And, you know, what they've been doing certainly hasn't been working. So um, now is a good time as ever to, to take a chance on a guy like Judge who clearly, uh, you know, they see some serious promise in. Yeah, I would say from the Giant fans I've talked to, Joe Judge has a very high approval rating. Same can't be said for Dave Gettleman. We've seen him for a couple of years now. So how do you think he's done as the Giant GM in his tenure? Well, I mean, obviously it's a bottom line business. So, the, you know, the results have been very good. I mean, you have to, you know, account for the fact that he didn't inherit a great situation. Obviously, you know, coming off a, a 3-13 season and, and a franchise that's been headed in the wrong direction. But, um, you know, I think his first offseason was, like really bad, like, and I think they're still digging out from that. Like he came in in a tough spot and made it worse by sort of the, the patchwork approach he had to that first off season. Whether it's you know spending top dollar on Nate Solder, you know trading to, to trading for the right to pay top dollar out Ogletree, um, you know the Saquon pick is you know probably the base for another day. Um, I think just the whole idea of like let's try to maximize whatever time Eli Manning had left and become a contender. You know, was really short-sighted and really you know kind of foolish um, as you look back on it. I think since then, you know, to his credit, I mean, he he has sort of uh, admitted his mistakes in both actions and in words. And you know, I think he is you know pivoting to what this thing should have been you know two years ago, which is you know really a full rebuild. I mean, you know, they have the new quarterback in that they're going to try to build around. And I think the approach has tra- changed drastically, and I think that is a good sign. Now, the big question is. You know, is he signing the right players, drafting the right players? You know, it's still early in that process, and it will be a process. So, you know, we're not going to get the results overnight. I think, again, the rebuild should be further along. But I think he kind of, you know, left things stuck in neutral there for the first two years. And it seems like now he's really starting to accelerate that and um, making better moves. Um, but, again, we'll see. Because, again, uh, you know, results rule the day in, in his industry and he's fully aware of that so you know another rough year and he might not get to see this uh, rebuilding process through yeah that's true and I think one of his biggest lightning round moves I think even he under true sermon will tell you was probably a mistake was the trade for Leonard Williams to give up the two picks for him obviously he puts the franchise tag on him so how long do you think like how big a contract do you think Leonard Williams going to sign with this team in, in the long run I mean that's uh, you know that's a fascinating question right now because I think there was sort of a perception that you know, either when the trade happened or, you know, in the offseason that there was sort of a handshake deal and this would be, you know, kind of no hassle to lock something up long term. And, you know, here we are, uh, you know, free agencies, you know, almost two weeks old and, you know, nothing is, um, is imminent as far as I understand. So uh, there's a chance that they just don't come to an agreement and Leonard Williams plays this year, you know, on the tag. And, you know, hey, listen, there's worse things to do than to make $16 million guaranteed for, for one season of football and then, you know, hit the market again at, you know, age 26. So, um, you know, I think Leonard Williams is in a good situation. Obviously, I think the Giants would like to come to a long-term agreement. You know, I'm sure that's Williams' preference as well. But again, he's in a good spot here that he doesn't need to, you know, take some low-ball offer. Like, I've seen that, you know, there's a report that the Giants want something multi-year in the 10 to 12 million uh, average range. If I'm Leonard Williams, I, I don't see why, you know, you're taking that. You know, I think, Again, you get that $16 million in your pocket and you have a chance to go maybe make even more next year with the cap's going to go up. So if I'm him, I'm, you know, I'm probably not taking anything less than, let's say, you know, $14 million a year. And even then, I think you're giving a little concession because, uh, you know, like I said, you got $16 million you can put in the bank right now. 
Um, but so I would say something in the you know, three years, 42 million, three years, 45 million would probably make sense. Um, but, you know, again, as soon as William signs that tender, which you know, he hasn't done yet, which I'm actually a little surprised that he's you know waiting, given the fact that Dave Gellman has pulled a franchise tag once before with Josh Norman. Um, you know, I'd want to lock that up before I, uh, you know, had, had something crazy happen like that. Um, but I, you know, I think once he signs that tender, he's he sort of in the driver's seat to listen. If they come with a great offer, hey, you sign it, and then you know where you're going to be for the next three, four years. But otherwise, I don't think it's a really bad alternative for him to just you know play out this year, you know, hopefully have a better season than he just had, and, and even raise his value going into uh, you know, next offseason. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the whole thing about De- Gallen pulling the tag on Josh Norman back into the Panthers. I saw SNY's route backing out, put a theory out today about like, is that a possibility down the road? Like, what, what do you think it would take for Gallen to even consider doing that here? I think it's unlikely, um, you know, because again, that, that's a that was a very rare move. I mean, obviously, Gentleman has done it, but it's just not them that's done around the league. And I don't think it's something you you want to see SCM make a habit of because that would really, I think, really reflect poorly with agents and players and, and stuff like that. They've done it twice in a you know five year span. So I think that's a, a, a total last resort. I know there's people out there saying, well, they could pull the tag and then use that money on Clowney. Uh, I, I don't I mean, listen, I guess that makes sense sort of in a kind of fancy football world, but in terms of like you know you. It just wouldn't be good faith. I mean, you know, Clowney is out there. If you wanted him, you could have just spent the money you already set aside for Williams then. So to pull it now, uh, you'd really be kind of screwing Williams because teams have already made their big expenditures. So you're putting him out at the market, um, you, know, at a, you know, at a tough time. And listen, it's a business. The Giants certainly would be within their right to do that. But I don't think that'd be a good way of doing business. And, and you know, Gettleman, it's a tougher thing to do. You know, he came in, inherited Josh Norman. You know, maybe it wasn't a guy that he really, you know, felt highly about, obviously Norman played well, but I think Edelman was easier to walk away uh, from Valley Norman. I mean, he, he put, you know, his butt on the line to make the trade for Williams to then pull the tag. I mean, I think it would just be sort of just such a disastrous move from like a PR front or, you know, whatever. Uh, I have a tough time seeing him actually falling through with that. Uh, again, you know, there's no reason to think that Williams is going to be a destructive force or hold out. I mean, listen, they put the tag on Again, if I'm Williams, I sign it. Uh, the fact that he hasn't, he, he does run that risk, but I think it's pretty low odds that Gettleman would, uh, you know, would do that again to somebody. Yeah, I would probably agree with that. Let's go to some of the moves he's made so far. They bring back James Bradbury, who drafts in Carolina. He brings him in to be the Giants' number one corner. Do you like that move? Yeah, I mean, they definitely needed, you know, you know, to make a move at corner. Um, obviously, when they moved on from Janoris Jenkins at the end of last season. Um, you know, that was made the spot you know, that much weaker. There's a lot of young players there that were, you know, at best, I would say, kind of up and down, uh, you know, as rookies or, or at least the first year player in Sam Beal's case. So um, they couldn't go into uh, the season with, you know, just running it with the guys they had last year because there's, you know, some major question marks there. So they needed to get someone established. Uh, you know, I think Byron Jones obviously was the top guy in the market. Giants had some interest there, but it just seemed like, you know, both sides, but I knew that wasn't going to fit. So. Uh, you know, they set their sights on Bradbury, who I think was, you know, pretty unanimously considered the second best corner. So, um, you know, they got the second best guy on the market. They're paying him less than Jones. So, they, you know, value kind of matched, um, you know, what his skill set is. And, you know, I don't think he's going to come in here and be, you know, Patrick Peterson in his prime or Darrell Reeves in his prime. But I think he's, you know, a very good, solid corner. You like the fact that he's 26 years old. Um, you know, I mentioned Jenkins. He's a guy who was sort of up and down and, uh, you know, just kind of a quirky personality. I think Bradbury, from all accounts, you know, very solid guy, durable, uh, you know, not going to make any waves. So um, I think that shores up a weakness. 
And, you know, again, I think he's going to be a good, solid player. You know, might not be an all-pro, uh, but still, still definitely an upgrade at a position that really needed one. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I feel like Giant fans, I know also I've been screaming for years, this team needs linebackers. They had a big one in Blake Martinez. Like, how would you view that deal? I know some people were saying, you know, maybe they overpaid a little bit when a better linebacker, Coyleton, got just a little bit more to go to the Raiders. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little less confused about the Martinez signing. I think he's a solid player. I think he's, you know, better than Al Goldatree or whatever other options they would have had on the roster. Uh, yeah, I mean, Corey Littleton, Joe Schobert, guys who were also available who ended up, you know, making similar salaries. I mean, Schobert deals five years, but uh, at the end of the day, they're all in that sort of like 10, 11, 12 million dollar year range. So, you know, they could have afforded those guys, but it really feels like they locked in on Martinez at the outset. I think a big part of that is Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator, was a linebacker coach at Green Bay two years ago. So he knows Martinez very well, but, you know, have a high comfort level that this guy's going to be. You know, in the middle of my defense, getting everybody lined up, calling the shots, and you know, I think Martinez, from everything I've heard, checks all the boxes as far as tangible leadership. So I totally understand why, you know, I think Patrick Graham, you want that guy running your defense. I just don't know that he's going to be a huge difference maker. And, and you know, for ten, eleven million dollars a year, I think you know you, you might have been able to spend that money on someone who's going to make a bigger impact. I mean, Martinez is going to leave this team in tackles the next three years. You know, barring injuries, that's that's a lock. I mean, the guy he racks up tackles. Um, I just don't know that he's a real difference-making player, and I think that the defense that did need the difference makers, so, um, you know, solid in the middle, but, you know, when you look at what they have at edge rusher, uh, even free safety, you know, I don't know if the resources on Martinez, you know, could have been used elsewhere and maybe yielded a greater return. Yeah, the Giants also made a bunch of secondary moves, but I feel like they still have some issues. Like, what do you think is the biggest thing that you're surprised they have not really addressed yet? I mean, I just touched on it. definitely edge rusher. I mean, even Gettleman acknowledged uh, after the season, I think he was on WFAN, and they asked him, you know, what's the biggest sort of hole on this roster that you need to address? And, and he, you know, flat out said, you know, I think we need to improve our pass rush. And I just don't know how you can look at the moves they've made, you know, so far and come to the conclusion that it's improved. I mean, I guess best case scenario, if, if Tyler Fackrell bounces back to the form he had in 2018 when, when Graham was with him in Green Bay, I mean, maybe he's you know, equitable to Marcus Golden, but they didn't go out and obviously, you know, get Jaden Clowney, uh, a lot of the top edge rushers, um, got franchise tags, that sort of shrank that pool a little bit, but I just, it wasn't a great pass rush last year, and, you know, there's really no notable upgrades that they brought in to date, and even you look at the draft, unless Chase Young somehow slides to the fourth pick, there isn't some slam dunk, you know, edge guy that they can get who they can plug in from day one and, and count on to be you know, real disruptive force off the edge. Uh, I think that uh, definitely sticks out uh, as a weakness, and, and maybe the options are a little bit limited, but still surprised they weren't a bit more aggressive in, in trying to address that spot. Yeah, so obviously that's a big issue, but, like, if you had to get the Giants, like, as of recording, like a free agency grade, what would you give them? Uh, It's so hard because, listen, I don't ever pretend to be a scout. I mean, you talk to people, and, and you know, you get as much information as you can, but, you know, so often I think everyone thought the Nate Solder signing was pretty good a couple of years ago, and that certainly hasn't panned out. So I'll give it a B, but I'll give it a B in this sense. Like, I don't know if Blake Martinez is going to be a really good inside linebacker for the next three years. Like, I think a guy like Cam and Bradbury, their floors are pretty high and the ceilings are probably relatively low. So I think they are probably going to be solid players. But the reason I'll give them a B is I like their approach uh, to this offseason. They really changed their way of doing business, whereas in the past they've given out lucrative signing bonuses which allows them to maybe add a few more B 
big, you know, big money players, but it adds pain down the line if you want to get out of those contracts. So, I mean, you look at 2016 with Jenkins, Olivier Vernon, uh, and Damon Harrison, they signed all those guys to five-year deals with signing bonuses. None of them finished those deals, so when they got rid of them, whether it was trades or cuts, every single one of them left dead money on their cap. I mean, obviously, the Odell trade, the JDP trade, all those types of moves, they gave big signing bonuses, and that has hurt them in, in their cap going forward because they, they bailed on those guys so early, and they really can't cut Nate Solder right now because they would just be kind of cost prohibitive in terms of the cap. So I like the way they structured this deal. So instead of giving big signing bonuses, the pro rate over the length of the contract, they went roster bonuses in year one. So, you know, Blake Martinez, James Bradbury have very high cap hits this year, but, you know, going forward, the final two years of the deal, they're lower, and there's no real commitment. So, Dan can get out of all both of these deals after two years, which, again, you're not planning on doing, um, but it's good to just have that flexibility. And I think it's smart that, you know, while they're rebuilding, they didn't need to go all in to try to fit, you know, one more stud into this class. You know, get some solid players in here, make some strides in 2020, and then go into the next offseason with a ton of cap base again, and then you can really, you know, maybe hopefully uh, accelerate the process because I think this is really sort of, you know, ground zero or, you know, a little above that because you do have Jones in here. So that was a big piece to the rebuild. But uh, I just like the, the approach. I mean, remains to be seen if the actual execution, uh, you know, will, <laughs> will turn into wins, which is obviously the ultimate goal. Yeah, it definitely is the ultimate goal. And I, I think, like, one thing I, you brought up, I also wanted to ask your opinion on. It's like, we are now basically a year out of that Odell Beckham trade. I know it was blasted at the time. You think a year out, do you think it makes more sense to the Giants that they did it? Yeah, I mean, it certainly looks better, you know, now than a year ago. I was, you know, a big critic of the trade. Um, you know, I think Odell certainly didn't have the type of season in Cleveland and the Browns themselves didn't have the type of season that a lot of people expected. So uh, I guess we'll see if, if there's another year like that. They're even looking even better. Um, you know, I think when you look at the return, it was, you know, it was a pretty good return. If you look at what, you know, the Texans, that's disastrous. Andre Hopkins trade. I mean, that was, you know, made the hotel return look a lot better. If you look at Stephon Diggs and, you know, I think Minnesota got a pretty good return there. Um, and you know, I think he's as good a player as Odell. So, I mean, I think the return was solid at the same time. Like, let's see what those players turn into too. Cause I'm not, you know, convinced that your Bill Peppers or Dexter Lawrence or O'Shane Simenez are going to be real, you know, game changing type players. And, you know, Odell at his best certainly was that. And you look at this offense, and they do lack that sort of big play weapon at receiver. You know, maybe Darius Slayton becomes that, but um, it was a little tough at times last year to, to see how much these receivers struggled to get separation. You think, man, imagine this offense if Daniel Jones was throwing to Odell. Um, but no, I definitely think the trade you know looks better at the one year mark than it did you know right when it happened. And again, I think this is going to be probably a big year to determine uh, you know really how it's viewed because. I did did not expect Odell to, you know, have such a sort of eager output in year one in Cleveland. It seemed like that everything was sort of a disaster there with Freddie Kitchens and with Mayfield and everything. So maybe they, you know, turn things around and and the views change again. But I I definitely think um, you have to feel better about it if you're the Giants. I'm sure Dave Gettleman feels a little bit of vindication because obviously he was crushed at the time of the trade. Yeah, he was. And I think he has one big asset left to play this year, which is the fourth pick in the draft. And... Where do you think they're going to go with that? I've heard them linked to Lyman. I've heard them linked to Isaiah Simmons. Like, what do you feel like they're going to try and do there? Yeah, I mean, I think those are the two obvious fits. And, you know, the matchup with value would be either Isaiah Simmons, um, you know, or an offensive tackle. I think a lot of people would like to see them trade back. And it does seem like Gettleman, who has never traded back in seven drafts, is at least open to, to that possibility. Of course, it takes two to tango. So you need to find a, 
a trade partner, so it's, it's hard to go too far down that hypothetical. But if they just stay at number four, if they can't find some of the trades, um, you know, I, I definitely think it comes down to tackle or Simmons. I, I feel like, you know, all things being relatively equal, and I don't, you know, I don't know what the draft board looks like. Uh, I think you have to go tackle. I think that's just been a weak spot on this roster for so long, and it's a chance. You know, there's guys that are considered, you know, top ten, actual, you know, worthy picks. Um, so they're in that position where if you can find that guy to protect Daniel Jones' blind side, to open holes for Saquon Barkley, it really makes those picks um, that much better. I mean, I know Isaiah Simmons is a unique talent and it would probably make a huge impact on this defense. At the same time, you know, I do feel like that type of player, you know, you might be able to find other ways. It's really hard to find these soft tackles. And if you really love one of them and you're sitting there, I think, you know, Ty kind of has to go to that position. Uh, because it's just such a valuable position, such an important position. And, and you know, top tackles just don't hit the market. I mean, you saw, you know, Jack Conklin was really the only guy who cashed in this offseason. Giants didn't go after him, but by the fact that they kind of sat back and haven't really addressed tackles, to me, that sort of is a hint that that's why we're there leaning with that first-round pick. But, you know, of course, it's, uh, it's an unpredictable process, so, so who knows. Yeah, my last question is this. You mentioned that Dave Gamble has never traded back, and obviously there's giant, a faction of the fan that thinks it's a smart thing to do with teams like Miami and the Chargers possibly looking for quarterbacks long-term. Like, How big a deal is it that Gamble has never done it in terms of like, oh, like maybe he's going to change his mind now or he's just set in his ways that like I can't pass on this guy because he kind of a gold jacket on? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of a – a flaw in, in his approach. I mean, and again, it's not just him, it's just sort of organizational. I mean, Jerry Reese, he never traded back in 10, 11 drafts over in Iran. When he Ernie Accordi, you know, I think, you know, he traded back for Q Anuka, and otherwise, I don't know if he ever did it. It's just something about the way, that, you know, that, that school of GM, they, they kind of, they're, they're big on the, uh, you know, bird in hands worth two in the bush. They don't like the unknown of trading back and, and flipping picks. And, and listen, you look at some of the best teams and most well-run organizations in the league. Obviously, you look at the Patriots, and they trade in picks left and right. Now, it doesn't mean you're always going to hit on the picks, but the, the kind of the point of trading is it's a complete crapshoot. So give yourself, you know, more facts to the plate. Like the number four pick versus number eight pick. The odds of nailing that, you know, aren't maybe that great, but let me just take the eight pick and then pick up two more picks in the middle round. You know, like I said, just kind of increase your odds of finding uh, players because to think that I know that this guy I'm going to take at number four is going to be a star, going to be a gold jacket player, uh, I think that's, you know, overconfidence that um, I think definitely has bled into to Gettleman's decision-making. But, hey, they totally adjusted the way they structure contracts with free agency. So, you know, maybe the uh, – the old dog can learn new tricks and also embrace trading back. You know, he's got a guy, Joe Judge, who spent you know formative years in New England, so he certainly has seen the, the value of that approach. So, um, you know, things are lined up for them to do it if, if Gettleman is ever going to uh, break that trend. All right, there we have it. Dan Dugan on the Giants. Dan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how do people follow on social media and keep up with what you're writing on The Athletic about the Giants? Uh, yeah, so Twitter is just uh, dduggan21. And then, you know, the athletic, uh, hopefully people are pretty well aware of that right now. And we're actually running a, a 90 day free trial during all this, you know, craziness. There's not a lot of sports going on, which will produce a lot of content. So, so people can, uh, you know, just go to the athletic.com and, and check that out and, uh, you know, give us a look. And, and you know, after three months and hopefully sports are back, you can see if it's, it's worth keeping, but you know, I, I promise in those next three months, I'll be putting out a lot of Giants content and, uh, you know, all my colleagues will be, you know, covering their feet you know, as, as best we can in, the, in this kind of crazy time. 
Yeah, I'm a big athletic reader. I love the stuff you guys are doing over there. Dan, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Mike. All right, and there you have it. That was Dan Dugan of The Athletic talking Giants football. Up next, we'll go from the beat reporter's perspective to the fans' perspective. I'm going to be joined by a couple of Giant fans on the Giants edition of the Fan Forum right after this. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. This is the Fan Forum. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Time for the Fan Forum, New York Football Giants edition. We already heard from Dan Dugan from The Athletic about the Giants offseason, some stuff like that. Now we're going to talk to some Giant fans to break down the storyline surrounding Big Blue and to head through the offseason. First up, one of the most prolific Giant ranters we know, and somebody we last talked to, I think, back in week number one of the football season, Justin Diaz. Justin, welcome back. How are you? Thanks, Mike. Uh, all things considered, I'm doing pretty well. How's everything going with you throughout all this craziness? Doing pretty good. The podcast is doing okay in the social distancing era. Hopefully, we are not talking about no sports forever. I'm hoping by summer we're actually watching sports again. I hope so. I'm not very optimistic about that, but uh, time will tell. Time will tell, indeed. Also on the line with us, he's been doing some legal spots for us. He's also a big New York Giants fan, Phil Freyetta. Phil, welcome back. How are you? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm good. All Uh, things considered, uh, hanging in there. Yeah, hanging in there, indeed. Let's try and distract the people a little. Let's not like go into doomsday about when, whether or not we'll actually have a baseball season. Let's talk a little Giants football. So, I'll throw the question to you first, Phil. Give me your thoughts right now on if you think the Giants are going in the right direction or the wrong direction. Well, Dave Gettleman's still the general manager, so they're going in the wrong direction. Uh, I mean, that, that's my feelings on that man are well known to listeners of this podcast. Uh, as long as Gettleman's employed, the Giants are not going to win. And that's, that's not because he is uh, intentionally trying to sabotage them. He's just inept. He's running the organization like it's 2005. And uh, he's continuing to do that in this offseason. He's brought in veteran players on bad contracts. Uh, the Leonard Williams, I guess, tagging was the ultimate disaster. They're paying Leonard Williams like a top-notch defensive lineman now. And I don't have to tell you this, Mike. You know he's not. And they traded some draft picks to get him. So Gettleman, uh, I guess the best way to say it is he does not understand that there are certain positions that have priority over others in modern football. Uh, he continues to prioritize run-stuffing linebackers and defensive tackles. And as he does that, they will continue to... Uh, have a Swiss cheese pass defense. That's really the best way to say it. All right, Justin, I'll throw it to you. What do you think about the Giants? Right direction, wrong direction? I mean, I obviously completely agree with Phil. We talk about this a lot offline, like but over text with, uh, with Phil's brother, Nick, actually. Um, yeah, it, it's more of the same. I will say there's nothing this offseason that has been an absolute atrocity or calamity that's just going to completely crater the team for years to come. And, and that's the standard for Gettleman, unfortunately. If he's not doing that, he's actually doing a, a relatively good job compared to what he's done in the past. Like trading your Hall of Fame, potential Hall of Fame wide receiver down the line 
for a mid round, a mid first round pick and a mediocre strong safety. Those are franchise altering in, in a bad way trade. Uh, this offseason, I mean, it's nothing that makes me optimistic or, or happy. I agree that tagging Leonard Williams was not the right move. I mean, <laughs> the gentleman, the floor, the, the expectation is so bad that I'm honestly happy they didn't just go out some crazy four or five year deal with an, an enormous guarantee, uh, guaranteed amount of money, like a huge signing bonus. So, I mean, that, that's what we're dealing with. Like, if you give, you know, if you put a five year old behind the wheel and he manages to not crash and kill himself, you're, you're happy. But, if he dings up the car, you can't say good job and clap, but you're expecting so little and you're expecting such disaster that when a complete disaster doesn't happen, I, I guess you're like, all right, this isn't so bad. And my hope is, uh, to answer your question, no, they're not heading in the right direction because like Phil said, Dave Gettleman's still getting a paycheck bi-weekly, I assume, from uh, John Mara, but they did front load these contracts with these guys like Blake Martinez, James Bradbury. I guess they're not huge guarantees that will, if they don't work out, they're not going to be killing them two or three years down the road. So my hope is, well, I know they're going to be bad again this year, but that's that's not changing no matter what happens in the draft, the rest of the offseason. So my hope is they're bad again and they finally wake up and fire Gettleman and luckily he didn't leave them with too much of a disaster cap-wise two or three years down the road and they hire someone competent to kind of clean things up. So that's, that's a long way of saying, no, they're not heading in the right direction. But this offseason, there, there really was so many holes. I don't know what gentlemen could have done to fix it like this offseason. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Dan Dugan earlier in the podcast. One thing he was big on, he's like, yeah, you know, Gellman made a big mistake at the beginning of his tenure by trying to you know, load up and make a run with e- Eli's last stand, basically. And that was basically a mistake. But the way he describes it, you know what? Like, now he's doing it. Is it too little, too late? We'll see. But, like, as you guys have said, he basically pointed out the same thing. Like, the moves they're making right now, they're pretty good. They make sense. James Bradbury fills a hole at corner. Blake Martinez is a lot, big linebacker, and they've needed linebackers for years. But, like, again, this should have been done two years ago. And I agree with you guys that this is just sort of an indictment that Gelman just did not get what he was walking into the first time around. He walked into a bad situation and, you know what, did not help make it better. Yeah, so, uh, Mike, I just want to chime in here, too, because uh, we, we talked about Gettleman, and, and I'm assuming we're going to transition to the coach at some point, but maybe now's a good time to do that, too, because, uh, like Justin said, we can hope and pray that Gettleman's only going to be here for one more year. So maybe the long-term future of the franchise is more so in the coach's hands, and uh, I'm not going to judge judge. Sorry to use that word twice, but I'm not going to judge him uh, – without having seen him coaching. Can I just ask something that's very important? Sure. What would happen if Aaron Judge judged Judge? <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know. I don't, I'd don't. i like to hear his opinion. Maybe you can get him on sometime, Mike. Well, I mean, he's not doing too much right now. I mean, he's just rehabbing, so maybe we have a chance to get a connection there. Yeah, you might be able to get him on. But anyway, what I was saying is uh, I know the guy has not coached a single game yet, so it's not fair to really – criticize him but that said uh, I'm not impressed whatsoever by what I've seen so far in fact I'm concerned 
uh, when an NFL head coach says things like nobody has a guaranteed starting job on this team, sounds like idiot. And uh, I don't use that word lightly. He, he just sounds like a moron. This is not high school football. Saquon Barkley is going to start at running back for the Giants. Daniel Jones is going to start at quarterback. There's no competition. And pretending that there is, you, you really just sound like a moron. So that, that concerned me a lot. Yeah, Justin, what do you feel yeah. about Judge? I had very little opinion of him one way or the other. I, I didn't when they first hired him, they were so I didn't even know who he was until like a week before they hired him. Uh, so I can't say I have a strong opinion about him one way or the other. I, I agree with Phil on the it's it's comically dumb because he's clearly lying when he says no one has a starting job. That's not the problem. Like I'm not concerned that they're not going to start Saquon or they're going to play Colt McCoy instead of Daniel Jones. But it's like Phil said, the idea that he feels the need to give off this perception of everyone has a fair shake and, you know, if Colt McCoy comes out and starts ripping passes in training camp, he has a shot to start. That and That's clearly a lie. So the idea, the, the fact that he thinks that that's the right mentality to maintain when you're, a bunch, when you're around uh, grown men that are playing football for a living, you're not around myself and Phil. Like I, I only played football senior year, but Phil played, a bunch of our friends played. He's not dealing with us. He's dealing with grown men that are playing for a paycheck. Cole McCoy knows he's not starting. Like it, Daniel Jones is starting. So that that mentality worries me. It kind of reminds me of Greg Schiano. I'm sure you guys both remember him. Uh, I'll never forget one year the Giants and Bucks were playing a game, and the Giants uh, they, the Giants were kneeling down. The game was over, and Schiano had his guys like try light up Eli like on the kneel down. And he, his excuse was he played till the whistle, even though the game was over. And at that point, I knew this guy was going to be fired soon. And sure enough, he was gone. Like, you know, this dumb high school, and maybe some college mentality, it, it doesn't work. I'm hoping it's just lip service that, and it's not something he's going to maintain. But it, that'll grow old quickly for, for players. Uh, that, that's what I think. But as far as the tactician, uh, his ability to, to lead, it's hard to say, but that that quote did worry me as well. Yeah, my perspective on it is this, because obviously you know that, like, he comes from the Belichick tree. It feels like sort of like a Belichick isn't about, oh, do your job, all this, all that. But the thing that would concern me is, yes, he won the press conference, but, you know, the Belichick assistants have a terrible track record as NFL head coaches. I mean, you look at Bill O'Brien, you look at Romeo Cornell, Matt Patricia, Mangini, the list goes on. I can't remember the last... Bel- guy off the Belichick tree. He's actually been a successful NFL head coach. I I agree. I don't know anybody, and that that is concerning. Uh, certainly, yeah, it's not, it hasn't been good. I, I I will say Bill O'Brien. I think is actually a pretty good head coach. He's historic. He's a Gettleman level bad GM trading Jeffrey Hopkins for an atrocious contract. But um, I think he's a solid coach. The rest are bad. And Mike Vrabel is not a Belichick coach. Let's get that out there because I've heard people say you can use him as an example. You can't. He played for him. That's not a coaching trait. But that, that's neither here nor there. That's Joe, yeah, Joe Judge being under Belichick is not a positive. That The evidence has shown that usually actually hasn't worked out. Matt Patricia is a terrible coach, and there's no chance he makes it past this year. This is the last year as a coach, if he even makes it through the whole, coach, the whole season. If there is a season. 
Yeah, well, that, gotta put that the asterisk there for sure. About if nobody knows anything at this point, so it could be a football season that could not be. But the, I want to counter on Bill O'Brien for a second. He's an awful head coach. He's won a bad division a couple of times, but this team with all the talent they have, they should have gotten further than the second round of the playoffs, like at least once. And last year, the lead, blowing the twenty-four nothing lead was egregious against the Chiefs. They blew the lead against the Bills and should have lost that game if not for the Bills out, out collapsing the Texans. I mean, Bill O'Brien's not a good coach. Let's be real. He's not a great coach, but if you lead your team to the playoffs almost every year, you're not a really you're not a bad coach. I, he might not be a, an elite coach, but I, I think people tend to talk in extremes with coaches. You're either really good or you're terrible, but there is an in between. If you're coaching your team in the playoffs, you know the Texans some loaded roster that you expect to to be a, a Super Bowl team every year. I, I don't think that. I think the Chiefs are a much better team. And they should have won. It looked worse because they got up to an early lead because the Chiefs dropped like 15 passes. But I, I agree. I'm not going to sit here and defend Bill O'Brien, but I think he's a solid coach. He, he clearly is capable of coaching a team in the league. He's not like, um, I can't think of any disastrous coaches, but he's not one of them. Matt <laughs> Patricia. And then it's all Yeah, exactly. He's not Matt Patricia. <laughs> I mean, come on, Mike. You should know this better than anybody. Uh, Todd Bowles, Eric Mangini, the uh, list goes on and on, right? Pretty much. I, throw Adam Gase on there, too. You throw him on there, too. Sure. Yeah, I mean, let's go back to the Giants. We'll not waste everybody more time on Bill O'Brien. If he's, everybody knows he's not a great head coach. Let's go to the quarterback for a minute. We haven't really talked much about Daniel Jones this offseason. I'll go to you first, Justin. Your opinion on the year one of Daniel Jones. I mean, I had such a low opinion of him when they drafted him. I, I was on your podcast. I said it will go down as one of the worst picks in the history of sports. I own saying that. It clearly was hyperbole. Oh, I, I, I said I didn't think at the time it was hyperbole. I really felt that strongly. Um, he, he showed he has the chance to be a good NFL quarterback. I'm not, I don't feel strongly that he will be. I think the turnover, the fumbling was ridiculous. He just can't feel a pass rush. I don't know if that's something that gets much better over time. I really don't. Uh, I think he throws a nice deep ball. I still don't think he has the strongest, just like a, an elite arm. He has a nice deep ball. He has really good ball placement sometimes, but then other times he seems to fail passes, puts too much air under it, and um, it gives the secondary too much time to get there. I think it was a promising rookie season, which and it kind of leads the future it's, I, I look at it as a toss-up. Will he be good or not? I, I mean, there's a chance. I'm not extremely. I'm not like that. That all right? This guy's the guy. But I think there's a chance, and that's a lot more than I could have thought. I thought when they drafted him. So that, that's what I'll say about it. On a pass foul, I'd say he passed, but I'm not going to say he got an A either. Um, I kind of equate him to. Uh, so when he came up. And I guess when he started making throw, uh, his first his first few games, you're like, wow, Daniel Jones, this guy looks great. But you kind of have to remember, well, who am I comparing him to? And I'm comparing him to what was Eli Manning at the end of his career, who really just was not an NFL starter anymore. So it, you have to take yourself back and realize, okay, is this guy actually good or is he just better than Eli, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think the thing with Jones you like is he's got mobility. 
He clearly got better as the year went on. There are issues with the fumbling you got to worry about. I, I, know, I think he's got a nice floor. The question with me is the ceiling, and I'm curious what you guys think. Like, if you had your choice of, like, young quarterback right now, would you rather have him or would you rather have Sam Darnold? Because Darnold has more turnover issues than Jones. They're going to be harder to fix, but I feel like he's got more elite, like, physical ability than Daniel Jones in terms of throwing the football. Darnold, without a question. Uh, the, the Jones, uh, and I've used this analogy off air to uh, Justin before, but he reminds me a lot of, I don't know, and I go on a baseball here, Mike, but do, do you, I don't know if you remember when the Yankees called up Miguel Andujar, everybody was like, oh, see, this guy can play third base because he was capable of picking up a ground ball and throwing it across the diamond like any, any high school baseball player in America. But when you actually watch him over the course of a season, you're like, oh, this guy actually can't play third base at a major league level. He, yeah, he can make routine plays. He doesn't look like a child, but he doesn't really look like a star either. And Jones... I'm worried may work end up in the same kind of boat where, yeah, he's an NFL quarterback. No doubt he's better than washed up Eli Manning was, but is he a stud? I don't he doesn't really have any attributes or abilities that would make me think he's a stud like Sam Darnold does. Sam Darnold has a, a very accurate arm, a very strong arm compared to Jones. It's, it's, uh, it's concerning, but, that said, he was a lot better than I thought he would be. Uh, it, it's it's difficult to evaluate him because, like I said, you're comparing him to a washed-up Eli Manning. Yeah, Justin, any thoughts on that question with the uh, Daniel Jones versus Darnold question? I don't feel as strongly as Phil does. I used to like Sam Darnold a lot. I still think Darnold would be good. There's just And you watched him a lot more than I did, but what I gather, there's still some like unbelievably dumb decisions that are Head scra- like so head scratching. Am I right in saying that? There's just yeah. some games you're like, what the heck is he doing? Yes, I think that's right. I think the way I would phrase it, I feel like Jones has the has the higher has like the higher floor than Darnold does. I think Darnold has a higher ceiling. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. I do still think Darnold, as long as the Jets settle the situation where. I mean, Gase is the coach, like or not. If he if Gase can manage to do a good job and build a good offense, and they surround him with a better line and, and weapons. I think Darnold, if, if you had made me pick one, I would pick Darnold. I don't love either of them right now, and going to the year, I really did like Darnold a lot. Still think he will ultimately be good, but I'm not as sure of it. I mean, granted, it was a weird year for him. He had the mono and missed some games and had that atrocious game against New England. I guess I'll say Darnold, but I'm not particularly confident in it anymore. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, like, you're at the point where you're a Jet fan, like, and, and me, like, you would hope, you would have hoped going into this year you knew that Sam Darnold was your guy. Like, I still think he will be, but I can't say for sure he will be because he did not take that big leap that the guys you take from year one to year two. And I'm sure the mono played a role in it, the line played a role in it. This year is big for both the quarterbacks. Yeah, it's, it's a big year for the quarterbacks. Uh, now, Here's another problem. Well, you're asking me to evaluate Sam Darnold based on what I see rather than what would be unseen. So I, I can't tell you how Sam Darnold would play if he was on the Giants. Uh, he's he's on the Jets. Adam Gase is his coach. So you got to give him a little bit of a break given those two things. And but uh, but yeah, he he certainly needs to perform better than uh, than he has been. Um, but I'd still take him over Jones if you gave me a choice. 
All right, let's go to the free agency period. We talked a little bit about it before. They bring in James Bradbury to be the number one corner. They bring in Blake Martinez to be their top linebacker, replace Alec Ogletree. They made a bunch of smaller moves as well. Justin, give you the Giants free agency grade. How would you grade it on a scale of 1 to 10? I'll say a 5. I mean, a 6 maybe. I, I Whatever exactly average that doesn't move the needle either way. Like the only Again, to me, the positive is the contracts are front-loaded. There's no albatross contracts that are going to hurt them in two or three years. Bradbury was, but you can't knock that. That was a good signing. So desperate for a solid NFL starting cornerback, and he, he might be better than that. He might be he's probably good. That was so they were so desperate. Their secondary is so pathetic last year. They absolutely had to sign someone just to be there, and that they know they can rely to be good. Uh, Blake Martinez is. He literally doesn't make a difference, in my opinion. Someone who lacks up tackles. I know I was reading today, he claims he's a better coverage linebacker than he gets credit for. Of course, he's not going to say, yeah, I suck at coverage and I can't cover anyone. But from what I've read, he's not good in coverage. That's where they struggled immensely across the middle of the field. Guys are wide open constantly. So someone who doesn't rush the passer, he lacks up tackles, great. I mean, that's a, he's a cleanup tackler. And he's not making plays in the backfield. That doesn't make a difference to me in today's NFL. Um, and then they didn't get a single legitimate pass rusher. Uh, they had got no offensive line help. So they had so many needs, and so few of them were actually filled. But again, I, I, I'm, it's like the Gettleman, the power of Gettleman in a negative way is I, I, he, he could, it could have been worse. He could have sold out massive guaranteed contracts. So he didn't do that, so I'm grateful for that. So I gave it a five or a six. Phil, how about you? I I agree. Uh, five. I mean, they, like they haven't destroyed their future, but they also, again, this is kind of what I was getting at with Gettleman and his lack of positional understanding, uh, or understanding of positional value. I should say they they, they don't have a pass rusher on the team. There, there is nobody on that team who can rush the passer. Uh, that the pass rusher is the second most important player on the field behind the quarterback. They don't have one. They don't have a left tackle. Probably the third most important position on the field. Now, and I understand maybe they'll draft somebody and maybe they could fill one of those two holes that way. But uh, without a without a legitimate pass rush and without a legitimate uh, uh, tackle, they just have no chance of competing. That's, that's, that's the reality. So, Blake Martinez, yeah, he may rack up a bunch of tackles five yards behind the line of scrimmage or beyond the line of scrimmage. That's great. But, uh, you know, they're still going to give up 30 points a game if, if they don't get a pass rush. Yeah, I think I'm with you guys. I'm, I'm on the, I'm like, literally, I think right about like a six for him because I think the moves they made were good. I think that the thing that Dan Duke can also point out earlier was like he was stunned that they had not go get a pass rusher because. On an interview with WFAN, I think I think probably with Joe and Evan earlier in the offseason, he said that his number one priority was a pass rusher. He did not get one. I get that there were a lot of them that got tagged, but you would think maybe at least bring back Marcus Golden hasn't done that yet. I also think that they they could have gotten a lot more help than they actually did for their money. Like, say what you want about the Jets, but Joe Douglas has gotten a lot of players in there and improved the team's depth. I don't feel like the Giants really – I think they got a couple more higher-end guys than the Jets did, but I feel like they still have depth questions throughout the roster. Oh, their, their depth is, yeah, their depth is terrible. It's uh, and it's been that way for years. Uh, I've it, it took me a while to realize that. I used to think, oh man, the Giants are so unlucky with injuries, but 
every team in the NFL has injuries. It's the problem with the Giants is the guy who they have come in for the injured player is just, just terrible because they have no depth. Uh, and that's, that's based on years of poor drafting by Jerry Reese and now uh, continuing with Dave Gettleman. No, I hear it. The depth is bad. I mean, the, the starters are bad, so I wouldn't expect them to have good depth. Um, I, I just... I, I don't. I I noticed you said they they made find some good players. They really didn't. I mean, Bradbury's good, but who else? Sackwell or Blakemore? Like these guys are. If you don't have them, I feel like there's basically no difference to your team. I I don't. Not to be. I know. I I feel like you know, still hammer the Giants constantly, but it's the only it's the only realistic assessment of what they do. Like it's. Yeah, people can talk themselves into Blake Martinez being a difference maker. He, he's not going to be. He's yeah, an inside linebacker. It doesn't it doesn't matter in today's NFL unless it's someone like Luke Keekley, really a great player, an athletic playmaker who's going to really change the game. These are plug and play players, Mike. Uh, it reminds me a lot of when they went out and got Alec Ogletree. Now that was a worse move because of the contract. But uh, he, he didn't make a single difference. You, you would have, you could watch every giant game that he was there, and have no idea he was even on the field. Uh, so I understand that he may have a decent rating in Madden, but uh, when it comes to real twenty twenty football, he's basically useless. Yeah, I, I like Black Bradbury sign because I think you could not have guys into uh, the season with a bunch of young corners. You need a veteran there, and I was not going to go back up a truck with Byron Jones. So Bradbury, like Martinez, I question because, yes, he tackles, but he can't cover. And I feel like when you see a guy like Corey Littleton out there who got just a little bit more money per year, I would have paid a little more to get the guy who can play all three downs, have a guy who can get schemed off the field on passing downs. All right, let's go ahead to the draft for a little bit because the Giants sing interesting spot. They have pick number four. They had the potential to trade down, even though Gettleman historically has never traded down. And there's a quarter. They have the quarterback. Teams like Miami, the Chargers, possibly the Jags could be looking to trade up for a quarterback. What do you think the Giants should do at four? I'll go to Phil first on this one. So Gettleman is very lucky here. Uh, because it's almost impossible to screw this up. Uh, what, he should do, what he should do is trade down, but he won't do that. He's probably going to draft an offensive tackle, and they need an offensive tackle, so that is not a terrible thing. Uh, it fits into his playbook of we need hog mollies or whatever he likes to call them. So, so he's in a position where it's almost impossible for him to screw up this pick. They should trade down. It's a no-brainer to trade down and acquire assets because they're not going to compete next year anyway. Uh, unless you tell me, and I admit I'm not qualified to make this assessment, unless you could tell me there is somebody in this draft who is the next Jonathan Ogden, he is a stud, you have to pick an at four, they should trade down. But uh, Gettleman won't do that because he doesn't believe in it. Uh, so he'll end up picking a tackle, which is not a disaster. They need to tackle. The big problem is, unfortunately, if they beat the Redskins in that meaningless game, so they can't get Chase Young. But that's not Gettleman's fault. That is is what it is. Justin, how about you? What would you do, what do you think the Giants should do it for? Uh, well, I just one thing I want to address: there is one way Gettleman could screw this up within the realm of possibility. Like he's not, I'm not, he's not going to take a punter for it. There is a stud defensive tackle out of Auburn by the name of Derek Brown, and. Anytime there's a big decision that Gettleman typically goes with the worst possible choice, like in picking number two, 
in a quarterback-loaded draft with the best offensive lineman prospect ever, maybe with Quentin Nelson, he took a running back. That's neither here nor there. Don't be shocked if he takes Eric Brown out of Auburn, is all I'm saying. What I, know, I, wasn't he should a, I didn't know about that. Sorry to cut you off. I didn't know that guy was in the draft. Uh, I take that back. He will probably pick him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, um, what do you, I agree that they should trading down would be ideal. Although I won't like Phil said, if they take an offensive tackle that's worthy of that pick, and he, he's a plug and play guy that from day one will be a good offensive tackle. You can't be upset about that because they desperately need an offensive tackle for the short term and, and for long term. Their offensive line, both their tackles, soldiers atrocious, and Remmer's still a free agent. But trade down would be ideal. If not, I would take an offensive tackle. Uh, I wouldn't even be that. I, Isaiah Simmons, I'm on the fence. He's so he's like he's a weird size. I think he's six four, like two thirty five. I don't know what he'd play, but everyone's insisting he's the next like Derwin James. It's hard to say. You'd be upset if you took a guy like that, but I think the right move would be trade down or offensive tackle. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with Gettleman is, like, back of my mind is, like, I know he said he's open to training down, but he's never done it in seven drafts. And he sees that mentality of, like, oh, gold jacket guy. Can't pass on the gold jacket guy, which, I mean, it's it's one thing if you're, like, oh, Jonathan Ogden is staring me in the face, I'm going to take him there. But, like, if you don't know that for sure, somebody's offering you a boatload of picks, move up two spots, I feel like that's something you have to do, and I don't know if he'll do it. Yeah, if they trade down, that's, to me, a serious sign that the shift in power has happened and Joe Judge has, has a lot of say in what's going on because they had literally the most obvious trade-down scenario maybe ever in that draft where they took Saquon. And assuming they didn't take a quarter, they weren't taking quarterback, which they we know they were not taking quarterback. Given that fact, it was the most the easiest. They would have gotten so much if they traded down and instead they took a running back. If you're not doing it then, you're never doing it. So if they trade down, to me, that signals that Joe Judge has a lot of say in what's happening. I agree with that entirely. And my opinion with with where they are for operating, I don't think they're going to stay where they are. I don't think they're trading down. It's like, I think you can never go wrong drafting an offensive lineman. Simmons, I know, can be a big difference maker on the defense you play in, right? But I think they've addressed defense. They need a left tackle. I think... If you're in a spot where you have your pick of the guys, and it sounds like they will, they'll have their pick of the four guys, I think you have to pick the one you like the best because you've seen in free agency, none of the tackles get there. If they do, they get massively overpaid. Go get one on a rookie deal, and then you can set yourself up for a long time. Yeah, so I'm I'm afraid of the uh, jack-of-all-trades defensive player for the Giants, to be honest with you. And, and the reason why is I, I, just, I feel that those players fit better on teams that have some talent on defense already. Like a like a, a Troy Palomalu type fit better on the Steelers because they already had a good defense. If you bring a guy in like that and then put him on a bad defense, I I don't think he makes that big of a difference. So I'm I'm afraid of that, but I don't think that really is a Gettleman pick anyway. Uh, a defensive tackle would be a Gettleman pick, but knowing him, he's not going to trade down. So let's just hope that he locks into the next Jonathan Ogden. I think that makes some sense. Now, last thing here. Let's operate the hypothetical here that we're playing a full foot 16-game season next year. Now, that's a risky hypothetical right now. There's no sports going on. We'll go with it. If there's a full season, based on the roster here, let's assume they give them a left tackle at pick at uh, pick four. 
How many wins do you think this Giants team can get? I'll go to Justin first on that. I'll say five. That's not scientific, but I just, it's a bad, you know, <laughs> every time I've been on this podcast, it, it, I've said the same thing. It's a bad team that's not changing. It hasn't changed. There's just nothing. They're not good at anything. And no matter who they draft, they'll still not be good at anything. And they're quite bad at a lot of things. So five wins, you know, would it shock me if they won six? No. Would it shock me if they won three? No. So, but I'll just say five is, it's just, you know, that's a bad team. It's bad at everything. So I'll say five wins. Keep it simple. Bill, how about you? Yeah, I was going to say five as well. Uh, I'll say four if you want, just to be different. But, uh, yeah, I think the four to six win range is where the Giants are. That's, uh, they're, for the same reasons Justin said, they're not good. They're probably the worst team in their own division. Uh, so, yeah, that up, then they're going to just continue to lose games. Uh, but I think as a Giants fan, they, and it's hard to do this, uh, I, I myself have had a very hard time adjusting to it, but you have to root for them to lose because the only way that the organization turns it around is Gettleman gets fired. Uh, so the, the absolute worst thing that could happen to the Giants this year is if they luck themselves into a seven or eight win season, which is doable in the NFL. And uh, if that happens, they're the franchise is going to get set back for many, many years. So you just have to hope that they lose. Um, I guess I'll close off with this, and I'm stealing this from Mike Francesa, who said this a bunch of times, but he's right. The, the NFL is a league that's set up on parity. So the, the, it's literally designed so that every team could go 8-8. Eight and eight. So for the Giants to have gone this many years of being bad, is it's almost impossible to do in the league. It's Cleveland Browns level, but they're, that's where they are, and that's why, as a Giants fan, you have to uh, just hope that they lose and hope that Dave Gettleman gets fired. Yeah, I think the I I put it at six wins for them. I think they have potential for more if Daniel Jones elevates the team a little bit. But I think I don't think they've done enough to fill the holes that they have to make you feel kind of like, oh, this can be a team that could do a Forty Nineers go from four wins to the playoffs, let alone to the Super Bowl. But like, I think if everything breaks like average, it's it's a six win team. I think the Jones can get them to eight if he's playing well, but they can also go down as low as four things if he just regresses. Eight would be a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think he's like, this isn't even a knock in him. I don't think he's nearly good enough to raise this team to eight wins. I, I, and I don't think there's a lot of quarterbacks that would, they don't have a pass rush. Like, do you know how good, you know how good an offense has to be? to keep up when the defense cannot get to the quarterback and you're facing a good offense. Like they're playing the Ravens this year. That's going to be comical. <laughs> they have no chance. There is, there is zero percent. You can rarely say that in an NFL game. They have no chance in that game. They, the Ravens are going to score seven straight touchdowns if they want to. Uh, games like that, they have absolutely no chance. They don't, the Cowboys and Eagles have basically been a hopeless venture for the last four or five years you can chalk up four losses right there it's easily too i mean if they win one game against those two teams it's shocking that that's five losses right there the Steelers, there's so you can chalk up a lot of losses which is funny me and phil always talk about this giant fans before the year i think it'll finally it's finally starting to shift because the reality of their terrible nature has started to sink in but even up to this year, 
Giant fans go through the schedule and say, Cardinals, that's a win. Lions, that's a win. Jets, that's a win. They watch all of those games. It's like they, they go through the schedule and chalk up these wins against teams that they're at best on par with, in reality, worse than. So the real situation is you can go through the Giants' schedule, say Ravens, that's a loss. Cowboys, twice, those are losses. Eagles, twice, those are losses. They're not, they're not winning eight games. If that happens, that means half the league sat up the year with coronavirus. That's the only way that's happening. And the Giants just got lucky because their players took social distancing seriously. <laughs> I mean, Mike, here's, here's the best way I could put it. Uh, if I were a Cleveland Browns fan, I'd look at the schedule and say, Giants, that's a win. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. A lot of teams are looking at the schedule saying, oh, we can beat the Giants this year. I'm sure the Redskins probably look at our schedule saying, oh, we can beat the Giants this year. I mean, they shouldn't say we can beat the Giants. They say we will beat the Giants unless our team, like, again, like the whole team had to stay home because they had the stomach flu and, like, they're playing the third stringers. Right, and I think that's the point Justin's trying to make is that uh, as a Giants fan, you find yourself looking at the schedule and you're like, oh, the Browns, we can beat them. The Redskins, we can beat them. The reality is that those teams there and their fans look at it the exact same way. Yeah, we're, we're going to beat the Giants. And over the past few years, they've been right. Yes, they have. And one last thing I want to throw out to, to you. I mentioned this to uh, Dan Dugan earlier in, in the show. We are now a year out from the Odell Beckham trade. Considering what happened with him in Cleveland last year, has your opinion on the deal changed at all? I'll go first. No, it was one of the worst trades in the history of professional sports. Uh, the Giants traded a superstar, all-world talent for a mediocre safety and a defensive tackle that's unheard of. That's like Babe Ruth to the Yankees, bad. And uh, it, it really doesn't matter how Odell plays in Cleveland. That's, that's what people don't understand. Because if you wanted to trade the guy, you could have gotten a lot more for him. But Gettleman has already admitted that he didn't shop him. So it's uh, it's kind of like this happens in baseball. I hate to keep going back to baseball. It's my favorite sport, so I know it a little bit better. But in baseball, a lot of times people evaluate trade deadline deals. And they're like, oh, the number one prospect we traded didn't turn out to be that good. So it didn't matter. But that's not true because the trade value is enormous. Beckham had enormous trade value when the Giants traded him, and they got a defensive tackle and a mediocre safety. That, that's just a pathetically bad trade. Justin, how about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree 100% because it's twofold for me. For one, the big reason I still said it's the value. You could have gotten, you should have gotten a lot more for him. Granted, DeAndre Hawkins trade kind of threw that for a loop, but. Uh, they should have been able. They shouldn't have traded him for starters. The locker room culture BS is is just that. It's BS. Just he, he worked hard. Teammates loved him. He wants to win. What more do you want? Like other than for him to not. He occasionally said some dumb things, but who cares? Move on. He's a great player. Um, they should have been able to get a lot more for him. And if you make a bad decision, it's illogical. It's irrational. And it turns out well. And this decision didn't turn out well, by the way. Jabril Peppers is exactly what we thought he'd be. The mediocre, strong safety. Dexter Lawrence is a run-stuffing nose tackle. that doesn't matter. But let's just say the decision turned out well and they got lucky. It doesn't mean it was a good trade. It just, it just means that a bad decision turned out well. But that's besides the point because it didn't. But I just want to add that because sometimes, like I always, I use this analogy a lot. If, 
if you have if you're playing blackjack and you have twenty and you hit, it's a horrible decision. And the dealer puts out an ace. You can't clap and say, I'm smart, I'm a genius, I'm gonna do that again next time. No, you're an idiot and you got lucky. That's besides the point. The Beckham trade didn't turn out well. How he played in Cleveland, he didn't play great, but that's a bad Baker still claims Baker Mayfield will be out of the league within the next year. I don't agree with that. But he did regress. That situation was a disaster. I still think Beckham in the right offense. Beckham anywhere will be amazing unless injuries take their toll. But it, it didn't turn out well. It's just this year was just not Beckham's best year. So, no, I don't reevaluate the trade. It was still extremely idiotic, and they shouldn't have done it. And, and you know what, Mike? Uh, also, I'm going to add a year for the Baker thing, so I'll make it three years. But uh, but you know what? <laughs> what? What people don't talk about with the Giants also, and we haven't talked about it in, the, I guess, half an hour or so that we've been going, uh, their receivers are terrible now, too. By trading Beckham, they have a very bad receiving core. Sterling Shepard is okay. Slayton showed some potential, but that they do not have a good receiving core. And I know that a lot of people got all high on the, you don't need receivers, but that even ran out for Tom Brady and the Patriots this year. Uh, they, they, it caught up to him not having receivers. So trading Beckham was, was just bad on multiple fronts. It, it harmed the roster. It was, uh, it, they didn't capture the value for the player and they, uh, uh, set a bad example too, I think for, uh, for, for whatever that's worth, for some of their star players to know that, hey, uh, we'll just trade you. I don't think superstar players really like the notion of people uh, just trading them for reasons that uh, are really, really just silly. Yeah, and the good about that, we got to the entire fan four with barely mentioning Larry Williams, so that's a win for him. I brought him up in, in the very <laughs> beginning, and I'll bring him up again. Uh, Leonard Williams, franchise tag, one of the one of Gettleman's uh, dumber decisions, but Justin is right. It could have been much worse. They could have given him a long-term deal. I'm they sure that'll happen they after this season. They still might. Well, the Leonard Williams, I mean, you, you, when you just try and think about the, the worst Gettleman decisions, I think you have to break it into two categories. It's what was the dumbest, like most illogical, and what was the most impactful? Because Leonard Williams trade is clearly the dumbest. There's so... Saquon is probably the most impactful, but at least you can kind of understand the logic of he's a, clearly a Hall of Fame caliber talent. So at least I get it. It's very dumb and it's idiotic and it makes me curious still to think about. But Leonard Williams, you cannot justify it. There's zero way to justify it. He traded a draft pick. <laughs> and eight games left in a season that you have no chance of making the playoffs for, for a guy who has, who's going to be a free agent. And he's not even that good. And the only justification you could come up with is it gave them the chance to negotiate with him early. Or, and you get a steep tape on him on your own team. That, I mean, which, you have to pick which reason is dumber. But that to me is the dumbest. I, that trade, I texted with my friends for days, still included some of my other friends. Like, you cannot possibly justify that trade. It's not even possible. There are people on Twitter that do it because we just live in a world where contrarians exist and they, they, they ha someone has to have disagree with the general consensus. But that's, it's a dumb, it, that to me, the Beckham trade again, the Beckham trade is more impactful. You traded away Hall of Fame caliber talent. But the Leonard Williams, that's what I'm saying with Gettleman. It's, 
all right, what's his worst move? Are you talking about dumbest and most illogical or most impactful? So the running lands to me is that trade will that's it, it, I, I actually think it's underrated by the Mets, like by the media, how dumb it was. I, I don't think it's talked about it. Every time Dave Gettleman's trade comes name comes up, I should say, by the way, this is a guy that traded for eight games of a solid defensive tackle <laughs> in a lost season. Uh, uh, yeah, the day they got him, uh, we're in a group text with my brother, and uh, my brother texted that they they got him, and and I I actually didn't believe it because I I just assumed that John Mara and Dave Gettleman that there was like some semblance of intelligence, but I was wrong, uh, and yeah, I don't know what to say about it. The uh, you know we wanted to watch the tape is that's real, really really hard to to justify in 2000. I, mean, I, I can watch Leonard Williams tape right now. All I have to do is go to youtube.com and I can watch it. So uh, I don't, I don't really understand, but you know, I don't want to get too riled up with Dave Gettleman. Uh, I guess the whole world has made me realize that there are things more important than Dave Gettleman. So I'm trying to stay calm, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, sorry to the listeners. If we have a very negative outlook, uh, if there's some positive giant fans, um, you know, keep it to yourself because you're wrong. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not sorry. It's not negative. It's realistic. I, <laughs> there's a difference. If, if you assess the situation, this has been a, this was a giant problem with the whole take one off season. They they probably were looking at everybody else saying the giant like you know Gettleman and Mara were sitting in their their robes and drinking whatever old like, men that are losing their mental facilities drink. And saying, ah, the media is so negative. Eli still has a, still has a, still has it. He's got years left, and everyone else is negative. Everybody else is realistic. This, this roster sucks. Eli is washed. I like. We are being realistic. Anything else is stupid. Like any other view of the Giants' outlook, just like it has been for the last few years. If you don't realize this team sucks, you are a delusional. And, and like, and I'm not sorry. I feel bad for you that you can't wake up and smell the coffee that's been brewing for the last seven or eight years. But it, it's they, we, we don't have anything to be sorry about. We're just doing facts. Giants suck. It, it's just doomsday all over again, and they'll never be good as long as the gentleman is employed. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me again, Mike. Uh, this was fun. I, I'm Love to do this again sometime. Hopefully, we can do baseball over unders at some point this year. But uh, I guess that's still TBD. Yeah, as I said on the top of the podcast, I said, you know what? Like, it's like obviously I was talking about the top of the show about how like baseball has this plan out there, but like we don't know anything right now. It's like for me, it's pointless to second when we have sports. We could have it in June. We may have it in, in September. We may not have it at all. So for me, it's just one day at a time. Yeah. See what happens and go from there because. It's fun to talk about, you know, like, oh, we're going to have the 100-game season with double headers, but realistically, we don't know anything. And that's just, it's just a way of hope for us sports fans, but we really just have to go one day at a time here and see what happens. That's the right approach. That's, that's just, I mean, sports, not sports, that's all we can do right now. This is unprecedented. It's insane. But stay healthy, be safe. Thanks for having me as well. It's just, I enjoy it. I it's therapeutic talking about how bad the Giants are and how much of an incompetent moron Dave Gentleman is. It makes me feel better, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people who uh, will cut you off and say, uh, you know, 
you don't get don't be so negative that that word again but uh it's good to have somebody who lets me just vent so thank you for that mike no problem this is the fan mike, you're a therapist we're, we're gonna write you a check Hey, this is the fan forum. I, I let the fans say what they want to say. So you guys got your points out there. I also will say as a Jet fan, thank you for that third-round pick. It'll be very helpful for us this year. Yeah, uh, you're, you're welcome. Uh, don't blow it, but knowing the Jets, I'm sure they will. So. Well, let's, we'll see with Joe Douglas. I feel like Joe Douglas actually has a plan, unlike some of the other guys we've had. Uh, that's true. All right, thanks, guys. Again, it was a lot of fun talking to you. Up next... We're going to the pop culture portion of the program. We're talking Westworld Season 3 with Sam DeRosa right after this. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast that you just heard the theme song, which I think is fantastic, from the HBO series Westworld. Season three is underway as we speak. We have three episodes in, and since Curry Enthusiasm is over, we're going to go to the next HBO show, and it's time to bring back into the podcast our pop culture correspondent, Sam DeRosa. Sam, welcome back. How are you? Good, and thanks for having me. Not a problem. I've got to say, first time not doing this in person is a little weird. It's actually very strange because I'm a very socialist person. So I'm like, where's Mike? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like I've, I think there were only a couple who had done every appearance in person on there a lot. It was you and Joe D. Right now, I think it's down to Joe D. That's going to change in about like a month. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm like one of the surviving two. Yeah, so you, were, you made the final two in that regard. But how's everything going with you in the quarantine world? It's lonely, but it's good, you know. Getting a routine down, doing, you know, like whatever, this, like the CDC is like, have a routine. So I have my own weird routine. <laughs> yeah, I have a routine as well. It's usually write, prep for podcast, work, and then catch up on the things I'm five days behind on the DVR. That's basically my routine. <laughs> Mine's like, do, like, clean the room in the morning, like, whatever I made a mess from the day before, and then do my work for work. And. <laughs> Uh, then literally like play video games and watch TV and then do a little more work. So it looks like I bookend, you know? Yeah. Spread the work out, make it last. Yeah. So it looks like I've been doing work all day, but in reality it's been like four hours of work. <laughs> yeah. I hear that. And let's get to the point of why you're here today. We're talking Westworld season three. So for those who are not the uninitiated, you want to give the, let's say the 60 second like pitch on like what the show is. Like the entire show? Like just the general premise. Okay. Is my 60 seconds starting now? <laughs> uh, go. Okay. Ah, um, so there is a theme park, like a Six Flags or like compounds or whatever, uh, full of in, like artificial intelligence, so like robots. Um, and it's a story of a, like, I don't like to use the word robot, but we're going to go with that. Robot Dolores who you see her progression to self-awareness and the different issues that arise and very complex characters, both artificial intelligence and real life. And it is a battle between humans and like artificial intelligence. And it's a great show to watch on HBO if you have a subscription. Yeah, you did that in 42 seconds. Excellent, excellent summation. Oh, I got worried. Time moves so fast when I'm explaining things because I'm actually a horrible explainer. Yeah, I'll add some details to what Sam was talking about. Basically, this show is set in this theme park 
called Westworld, and the main point of the parks basically is that you have these characters that are built by called robot hosts. They're called basically. It's like if you've been to Disney World, you see the animatronics, like much more sophisticated versions of those are running around the parks. As the series progresses, we learn the guy who created them gives them intelligence and wants them to grow beyond their actual like programming and become like more sentient. The robots rebel the end of season one, basically. Season two is a bit of a mess, but it ends with Dolores, who Sam mentioned, leaving the park and bringing some hosts with her, including Bernard, who is... The show begins, we think he's a human, but we find out later he's a host built by the founder of the park, Robert Ford. The third main character is another host named Maeve, who gains like superpowers throughout the series somehow. That's basically some of the stuff, but... For more information on the currencies, I'm going to throw the spoiler warning up there. So, If you're not confused yet, you, you might want to get out and actually try and watch some of this thing or at least go find another podcast to explain more of this. But Westworld, very, very complicated. Very complicated. Also, you should throw on the spoiler uh, alarm when you're like, uh, Bernard is actually a host because that was such a mind blow in season one. So it was one of my favorite. Oh, actually, it's like my second favorite thing of season one. Yeah. So did you get in the show right from the beginning or did you like pick it up like midway through? Okay. So now like, because I was uh, telling you before um, we started uh, how I've rewatched it a few times. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure I started like, but I don't think I started like episode, season one, episode one. I think I started like season one, episode three. I think I was like two weeks behind. I'm like, this is a weird show. I don't know if I'm going to watch. And then I heard like the hype for it, but I've been with it since season one. It wasn't like the first episode, but definitely episode two or three. Yeah, I'm around the same point where I heard good things. I think episode two was coming out, and then I went back and watched the pilot. I'm like, ooh, this is cool. Then I sort of stuck with it and just wrote it out. Season two, like yeah. a, season two, like you and I, I think, would both agree, was a little like out there. They played with time too much, and then they had a bunch of different threads going on. But like, there were some episodes in that season where you're like, wow, this show can put it out of the park when it's on, on this game. Yes, I mean... Speaking from somebody who literally just watched season two yesterday today, um, better the second time around if you rewatch it. Yeah, once you have an idea where because it's you, going. Yeah. I was just like, oh, that makes more sense. You know, everything with Bernard with the time loop with him still confuses the living the Jesus out of me. Yes, it did. And we're going to talk now about like season three so far. So I think season three personally. I think it's much better than two was. I feel like they've gotten it back on track. They focus more. They simplify the storylines down to, I think, three main ones from what we can see. They added a fourth in episode three, but we have a storyline with Dolores, yeah. a storyline with Bernard, and a storyline with me. I think that's helped the show a lot. Yeah, because I think they're like the three, like the power hitters kind of deal. So like they'll have the characters, like the Meyer characters behind them. Um, first, episode of season three i was like oh no what's gonna happen to the show kind of deal you know because i'm a sucker for the actual like theme park itself like westworld um i like seeing the different worlds and so like when they had episode two with the war world and then i guess you should put up the spoiler alarm so it's okay yep uh to say but when it was like all in made like you know her not imagination but like her like perceptive or percepted 
reality like that she figured that out like I was a little upset I'm like oh we're not really in Westworld but then like Bernard goes there and I'm like what I'm like stop teasing me with the Westworld <laughs> like being there yeah, it was definitely interesting. We'll start with the Dolores storyline first. I mean, we pick up the season where, like, she is out in the real world. She's trying to get infiltrated this company called Insight. She's trying to find information how to get back at the humans. And, I mean, what do you think her master plan is here? What do you feel like her main goal is? Apart, from, I think. Is- um, I'm like, oh, what's the, what was, I cannot for the life of me think of the, the, it spits out all this, like, like ideas and stuff like uh that program that giant computer that they've developed that in the, like the first episode she tries yeah. to like the, um the, seduce the man for the insight yeah so like i think she just wants to corrupt it yeah and she's gonna like so in episode three that we just saw um she tells uh caleb that like this is all you're gonna amount to because this is what this computer told you you're going to be. So what I'm thinking is like she's gonna like set free not only the host but also like mankind. Yeah, because in this world, mankind basically the elites run everything. It's the one percent, the one percent thing. You kind of see on Mr. Robot a little bit, which I I love that show. We get a little bit of that here. I also think Dolores' storyline is because like she is like the most bloodthirsty of any of these hosts, and like. We see your episode one basically just like rip apart an entire military unit of like mercenaries out to like basically like kill her, which I think was pretty impressive. And it's really cool because season, I think it was season one, episode one, where she, so like the first ever episode, she smacks her, she kills a fly. So you go from killing a fly to killing all those people in like two seasons. It's like a pretty cool character arc for her. Yeah, it is. And. She's basically been paired so far this year with uh, the new character, Caleb, played by Breaking Battle on Aaron Paul. So how do you think he's fitting into this show? Um, Because I watched, you know, because season or episode three, I apologize. Uh, episode three came out and I think it was in this episode where I was, okay, like Caleb is, a, you know, part of this. Because at first I'm like, I understand they have to set up Caleb's character. We don't know much about him. But I was very wary about him. But now I'm like, okay, like, you deserve a chance, and I will give it to you. Yeah, I feel like in terms of the human characters, the most pure human character on this show is since Elsie. That's true, yeah. So, I feel so bad for Elsie. <laughs> yeah. I wish she survived. Yeah, poor Shannon, where we got such the raw end of the stick on this show. She was like a breakout character <laughs> in season one. Then she disappears, like, halfway through the season, like... We don't see her again until about the end of season two where he finds out that Bernard basically, like, knocks her out and, like, leaves her, like, trapped in, like, a cabin or something in a different part of the park. Then she comes back, lets her so she gets killed off by the Charlotte robot. Yeah, I was, like, hella pissed. Also, I uh, thought she was a host for a little bit. I was like, no, she's not real. Because I'm like, how do you survive for that long? Yeah, well, I mean, the show does a good job of, like, blurring the line of actually questioning, like, are you a human or is this a robot? Like it's programmed to think it's human. Like we talked about before. Yeah, like a like, uh, Luke Hemsworth character. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, that one was a surprise. I know they dropped it at the end of season two. They basically hint, they made it subliminal. Like, oh, like he was actually built as a robot. And the whole time we thought he was actually just a human. And then we basically. Yeah, the only time, the only time I thought he was a host was when he's like, I've been here so long, I can't remember, like, how long I've been here. 
I was like, oh, maybe. And then I was like, forgot about it because that was the last episode of season two. And then he was a host. I'm like, holy, like, holy snap. Like, that's insane. Yeah, they do a good job with, like, making you question stuff. Like, there's, especially in episode two, the Maeve episode, where we see the great Lee Sizemore played by Simon Corman come back. And then you have this whole bit where, like, at the end of season two, you thought he died because he gets basically real up with bullets, like, most of the way through, like, as he's helping the host try and get to this frontier park, basically where they can, where the conscience can be free. He comes back, yeah. and then we find out that he is actually a host designed in this fan in this fantasy world they made to occupy May's mind. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I was really upset because I really enjoyed his character. I hope he's like secretly alive. I would not be surprised if a Sizemore host actually showing up in the park at some point because I feel like we're not done with the park yet. Okay, so I don't know. I know I'm kind of like sidetracking, but I was rewatching the entire series because I'm crazy. But there's an episode, I think it's in season one, where, like, they're showing Logan all the different hosts. There's a host that looks just like him. Yeah. And it's really bugging me. And I'm, like, I'm not too sure if I'm, like, on something or all, like, people are starting to look similar. But I'm, like, wait a second. That looks like him. That wouldn't surprise me if they had stuff like this going on. Because Ford made of remember, the original host, original founder of the park Robert Ford played by the great Anthony Hopkins by the way I love the fact they actually got him on a TV show but he made a young <laughs> version of himself so I mean anything's possible with this show that is true yeah I remember, I remember that as well I think the thing about Caleb I like is that like he is a complex character like he does you see him in the pilot of the first of season three where he's going out basically using the crime app to go like basically rob 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 people to get money to and you find out it's just to help out his sick mother and you're like oh yeah. i understand it and that gave us our great cameo from the one and only marshawn lynch which i love as a sports fan it was so funny because i'm like that was like marshawn lynch and i'm like no i'm just losing my mind and then i was watching like the after scenes and it was like marshawn lynch i'm like holy mo like holy mackerel like there he is i wasn't crazy yeah, I love they gave him the light up sweatshirt that basically it lights up whatever his mood is. That was fantastic. Yes, he actually talked about that sweatshirt too. If you watch the after, uh, like the after scenes, like behind the scenes stuff, he's so funny. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Like, I think his character name is actually called Giggles. I think it's hysterical considering you know his personality. Oh yeah, life. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, wasn't he in like a like a um, a role on Brooklyn Nine Nine, like a guest role? Yeah, he's. Yeah, for somebody who did not like the media when he was playing, there's actually some interesting real life stuff going on with him. Yeah, if you um if you look it up, if you you know, it's not gonna ruin anything watching it. If you look up his episode that he was in in Brooklyn Nine Nine to watch it, he's so funny. I'll add to the quarantine stream uh, checklist here. There's enough stuff going on in the streaming queue. We'll get to yours later, but we'll stick to the less world. I think Aaron Paul, I think his character works. I I like that he has this sort of like he's gone longer as he does doesn't realize the host initially was like it's the right thing to do. She needs help. Like he's like a pure character, which is not something we see from the rest of these humans who are all just greedy pigs, basically. Yeah, and I like that. Like I hope I like I think on some level Dolores like respects that, and she's not like completely like self self centered. Like she's self centered, but not like insanely. Like she's there to like I know she, it, her she she has motives to do what she wants, but I think that she also, like, wants to help on some level. Yeah, I feel like in some level, like, Caleb is filling the role that Teddy had the first two seasons for her, where, like, 
he was like the good guy love interest. She ends up like killing Teddy, I think, in season two because like he couldn't do what the the Wyatt personality wanted, and people who are wondering what that is, Ford programmed her with a separate personality, like based on like a renegade called Wyatt, who was basically the rebellious side of Dolores. I think like Caleb fills that Teddy spot. Yeah, but no one can replace James Marsden. He holds a special part in my heart. <laughs> um, but I think he shipped him off to like where the coordinates are to yeah. all the information. Yeah, and I think that's where he is right now. Yeah, up with yeah in that yeah I think she said she alluded to him possibly being in the forge with the Ghost Nation people with Maeve's daughter with like all those other hosts who they sent there to basically free their minds from having to be like in the park. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking well, of, he's also there. So like, he's also there by himself though. Yeah. At the end, he's all alone, which I would think there would be other like hosts there. So I'm just thinking that like, it's a separate place. Like he's just with all the numbers. He's just with like information. He's all alone, but he's with information. Cause I feel like she only trusts him to like guard the information. Yeah, it might be a motive there, but now you brought him up, I do want to get to another interesting point, which is this episode, we spent a lot of time with Charlotte Hale, played by Tessa Thompson, and people we'll give a little backstory for those who are not familiar with the show entirely. Season one, she shows up late as a board member on the company, Delos, who, who runs the park. Season two, we think we're following her trying to stop the rebellion, but we find out late in the year that Dolores made a host that looks like Charlotte, kills her, and then has and leaves the park in the Charlotte host body, brings along five brain balls. Later on, we see <laughs> that again, if you're not following this, we're doing the best we can. This is very complicated. <laughs> yeah. So we're, so continue the point here. Like Dolores rebuilds her own body as a host. We see the Charlotte host being put it back into Delos to sort of be a mole, but we don't know what hosts, like brain ball is inside of Charlotte. So who do you think that is right now? Who do you think is uh, playing the role of Charlotte? So I was, while I was rewatching um, the entire series, um, I wrote down like a few people and I honestly think it would be like an alpha model. Like, so like the original, more the original host, which is like, you know, Teddy and Dolores, but also, I don't, so it's, I can't tell if it's, like, more of, like, a female or a male presence, because at some parts, like, um, Charlotte, like, sounds like, like, a man, like, when she, like, uh, kills the man in the park, you know, she has, like, more of, like, a manly presence, and then, like, when she's, like, alone with Dolores, she's, like, crying and upset, so I'm, like, who the heck is this person, so I really think it could be three people. And it's Clementine, Angela, or uh, Mr. Abernathy, which Ooh. I feel like maybe he has a first name, but I never, I don't know who it is. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's Peter Abernathy. Okay, I call him Mr. Abernathy because yeah. I don't know him on a first name basis. Yeah. <laughs> um. So it has to be one of those. I have to be one of those three people. Angela, I feel like would be like a long shot, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um. I would hope it was like a keep, a keep. Akita, the he's like I know I can't pronounce his name. Yeah, yeah, ends up being my favorite character with Maeve on season two. Um, like he would be like a super 
super long shot, like insanely. But like, I wouldn't be surprised if he's one of those brain balls in her purse. Yeah. Cause he's also an alpha, you know, he's an alpha model. Like he's been there. Like he has certain like little things that I feel like would help Dolores. Yeah. I, I th- there's definitely an interesting a lot of possibilities there. I think Teddy's a strong possibility just because the way that they were interacting in the episode, like it made it feel like the way the dialogue, especially when she first brings the Charlotte host online, it made me feel like Teddy was there. But then I got thrown like in the scene when they're in the hotel. I'm like, this doesn't sound like something Teddy would say. So maybe it is somebody like Clementine who like who was an assistant character to Maeve in the original park, and then basically gets lobotomized in the middle of season two at the, in the middle of season yeah. one. And then you wonder. And like, and that like lovely uh, scene in the last episode of season two, where she like rides it. She's like the last uh, member of the apocalypse, basically, you know, like she's riding in the white horse, like she's supposed to be Beth. So like, I'm wondering like, yeah, she is like kind of lobotomized. So I'm like curious. if like, if she's fixed, like that's the only thing I don't get about this show is like how you fix people like it's so strange so i really think it might be clementine like angela i think like blew herself up or something yeah I so think- like i'm like is that her but then again like they have that bulletproof brain little holder because they don't really have brains yeah yeah they're all brain they're all brain balls at this point like they that's the basically they they their entire person code and personalities are these little like black balls that you can insert into a host like we saw that like the Mave host had the brain ball removed and at the like in the scene episode two when Bernard goes looking for her in cold storage. But like I think yeah. Teddy makes sense. I don't wanna I'll throw out a dark horse. We haven't heard really anything about Armistice yet. So like I could see her being inside there too. She's the one with all the snake tattoos, correct? Yeah, she's the one with all the snake tattoos who's helping out Maeve and Hector last for most of season two. I know. So like I thought that it was gonna be her. So you know like the um when Charlotte, host Charlotte, carves, like, stuff into her arm and into her chest. Yes. That's when I thought it was her. But then I'm like, they barely had any interactions with each other. And she's not even one of the original hosts where, like, Dolores would have, like, spent time with her to remember who she is. So, like, that's where I'm like, especially when she, like, did, like, you know, carved into her own host body. I was like, oh, that could be her. But you know what? Who knows in this show? <laughs> Yeah, it could be somebody we completely out of left field we've seen once, and then they just happened to be Charlotte. So you never know what this. Yeah, show. it could be uh, what's his face, Hector, right? Yeah, like Maeve's love interest. It could even be him. That's an even more of a long shot. It, it could be because we only saw Hector in the dream sequence in Maeve's fantasy sequence. There, we never saw his actual host body in the in the parks again. Yeah, that's true. I just love. Um, I just like. I just know that because Felix is one of my favorite characters just because he's, like, super, like, loving. You know, he's another one of those good humans. Yeah. I'm, I'm, like, curious before he went. Yeah, Felix and Sylvester, I believe, are still working at the park, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Well, I hope they're okay. I really root for just Felix. I don't care about the other guy. Yeah, Sylvester's a little bit of a douche. Oh, yeah, because he also only did things out of fear if he didn't care. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm hoping he cared at the end when they're, like, pick the host you want to, like, Days or whatever, so yeah, I think he's one for sure to keep an eye on. And I think let's go to Maeve before we move on from Charlotte. I want to say this show does a good job of making you care about characters you really didn't care about. You mentioned before with Akishida from last season, where 
his episode where they gave you his backstory was like the best of the season. I think what they that gave- was the best of the season. Oh yeah. my god! And yeah. like I when I was like rewatching it because of course I'm doing like actual work when I'm rewatching Westworld season one and two. But for his episode, I stopped everything I was doing because it was such a good episode. Yeah, his was great. They gave you a lot of good backstory on Charlotte. It's apparently, in the real world, like she has a kid and like she had like a significant relationship, and like they give you like make you care more about like the actual Charlotte as opposed to like in the past, you're sort of like this soulless corporate type in the in the first two seasons. Yeah. Did you like how the kid was like, "You're not my mom," I, like he knew? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Like he could sense that something was off. Because at first he's like, you're not my mom because his parents got divorced. Like, she was, like, his mom. But, like, that was when you're like, oh, he doesn't – he's just saying that because they're, like, divorced. But it wasn't until she's holding him in bed and he's like, I want my real mom back. Yeah, it's interesting he picked up like, on Like, that it. was so – yeah, that was so weird. And then, like, when she's killing the man who is the pedophile in the park, she was like um, – like, he just – like, you know, because she knew that he knew that, like, you can't fool everybody. Yeah. She can't fool everybody. Let's let's go to uh, next character. We'll go to Maeve for a little bit. The Maeve storyline. We got most of that in episode two, where we we see her wake up in the park. She thinks she's in this this war world, which is based on fascist Italy. I think in the middle of World War Two, we see her work with Sizemore, with Sizemore, who we think at the time is alive to escape. Then we learn the whole bit that this is just an illusion to occupy her android mind. Which I love the part of that episode where they basically close the letterbox in when she realizes it to like we basically change the format ratio make you realize that it's not what it seems so i think it's, it's a trick i've seen them do on the show homecoming on amazon prime that's really cool oh yeah i haven't seen the that show um but i was just like i was just so disappointed that you weren't actually in west world that i was just like annoyed but um the concept is super insane so like you're in you're in Westworld in this fake Westworld, but then you also have like the where the humans fix you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so complex. It's like so insane. It's like a world within a world within a world. So I'm just like Jesus. Um, but where I just I can't figure out where that like artificial intelligence like reality world is. Yeah, I think it's like in that unit, like where basically May's brain balls in like a separate facility with a couple other ones. And at the end, of this, she realizes what's going on. She manages to trick the simulation by basically – because she has a great line about how – one thing I learned about humans is like – is that you're all lazy. And she basically comes up with like, like a riddle to stump the code. And then she basically yeah. ha- has – hijacks a robot to break her brain ball out. But Yeah, I, that was so cool. I yeah. like how she's like, she'll do. And I'm like, oh, no, that poor robot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then at the end, we see her back in her actual host body. She basically is trying to be, I think, another one of the, the new bad guy of the season, basically using her as a pawn to try and take down Dolores. So I think it's interesting to see how she tries to overcome that because this guy can see, actually. I think, I think she's in another reality because I don't think that guy is an actual person. I think that guy might be the whole system. Interesting. I'm not too sure because we never we haven't seen him in person except with Maeve, like with – um. Dolores, uh, not with Dolores, with Charlotte. She has to wear hologra- like holographic glasses. I'm not too sure about what kind of technology they use. Um, but I'm thinking, like, is this guy even real? Like, <laughs> I mean, it might be just paranoid, but... At this show, you never know. You can never rule anything out. That's true. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's go also to Bernard and Bernard's storyline. We saw at the end of season two, Dolores activates, brings him back online, basically says, I need you to be a check on me in case I go too far. And right now it seems like his mission basically is like, I'm going to stop Dolores from basically like destroying all of mankind. And the one thing I will say that they put in the show, which I'd be concerned about if I was a Bernard fan, I don't like the fact that he has a remote control that controls, like basically switches him from human to full on aware unaware robot that seems like a bad idea to have that just floating around your pocket yeah <laughs> just hanging out there look, yeah. like reaching in for change what's the switch like yeah. i don't even i like i'm just so so like i only really honestly like bernard season one because you think he's human until he's not and then i'm like oh he's a host but then like season two it kind of locked me on my bernard fan train um, just because I like want him to be Arthur, you know, like I want him to have that self awareness of Arthur, but he never will because he's built by Ford. But I'm just like, I don't know if he can stop Dolores. I feel like he's just gonna, he'll be like, hey, like this is fine, but maybe not kill like 100% of the human population, just kill 99. I feel like he can't even really stop her. Yeah, he's, I think his mission's gonna be fun. Now he's got stubs on his side again, too. That will also be interesting to see that, see that sort of buddy copy through the rest of the season. Yeah. I also loved how Bernard, like, Stubbs also, like, basically realized, like, my function is protect all hosts. The hosts are basically dead, so I'm going to try it off myself. And Bernard basically reprograms and says, (laughs) your mission now is to protect protect Bernard at all costs. He's like, you could have just asked. Yeah, that was pretty, that was clever. That was cute. Also, I like how everyone was like, what's the deal with Hemsworth on the show? Like, what's his purpose? Because they've been saying that for two seasons. And now he had the purpose. I'm like, thank goodness. Yes, the un- the forgotten third Hemsworth brother, Luke Hemsworth. They, they everybody talks about Liam and Chris. And nobody talks about Luke. Oh, poor Luke! I, it's, and like, isn't he like the oldest or something? I think that's correct. I feel like he is the oldest. That's such an oldest thing people to forget about is the oldest child. Yeah, we both relate to this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Last thing before we move on from the Westworld, because there's a couple other things I want to hit on with you in terms of the pop culture sphere, like. Who are some characters we haven't seen yet? You're surprised that we haven't heard from. In season three? Yeah. Um. Well, I guess it's not really like that big a surprise. Like I was surprised we didn't hear from Will already. Yeah. Because um, but you know, then I saw like the teaser for next week, and it's like probably all Will oriented. Yeah. So like Will or um, oh goodness, or feel like Felix. I want to know what the heck's going on with Felix. Yeah. He's probably, like, my main concern right now. Yeah, my main thing was, like, where's Ed Harris? Because, we, I mean, he's been in the main credits. He hasn't appeared in an episode yet. Like, he's been the biggest, like, name star on this show for the first three seasons. And, like, the fact we haven't touched on his storyline yet, the season's almost halfway there. It's a little strange. Yeah, that's true. I, like, I don't know. I So, like, I can't remember. Like, I don't know. I, like, love Will, like, the, get, the beginning of the series, Will. And then I'm just like, he's just so, like, he's a great character because he's very torn about his, like, thoughts and stuff. But, like, the part where he was, he's just so obsessed with the world. Now that there is really no Westworld right now, I'm like, what the heck is, like, his deal going to be? Or are we just going to see Host Will's brain, like, moving? Like, if we're just going to get Host Will and he's actually dead. Yes. Other These thing- are things I need to know, like, next week. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, Keith even forgot that post credit scene at the end of season two where we find out some point in the distant future he he has basically become a host and they're trying to program him so he's actually more of his full personality. I think I don't think we're there yet, but I think I'm curious when we get that addressed. Yeah, I know it's very fitting because of all the like crap he put um yellow through. Like the father. It's just so crazy. It is. We're going to definitely, we'll check back in on Westworld in the future. Sam's agreed to come back on after the season. We'll, hopefully by then we'll have more answers and probably a lot more questions about what's going on. Yes, I'm so sorry. I'm very Westworld oriented. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the other big pop culture phenomenon right now, which is Tiger King on Netflix. This, <laughs> this documentary has taken over the world. And I got to say, you've seen all seven episodes. I've seen one. I have one question for you about this. Okay. Like, why is this popular? <laughs> um, I don't know, but the fact, and I know you told me you only watched one episode, so I won't go into, like, huge depth. I know you probably see spoilers, but I'm going to respect the one episode watch. Um, the fact that I got hooked after the documentary, like, documentarist or whatever, the guy who made the documentary was like, oh, so I didn't plan on this documentary, like, being filmed for five years i'm like this is exciting this is why you know how you and i have to make the documentary for school and everything uh so i'm like imagine if you and i picked a topic we were filming and then something like completely like railed our entire documentary and then we spent the next five years filming it i was like this has to be good so i'm thinking it's just because it's such it's a dumpster fire and because we're all in quarantine this dumpster fire is needed to keep our minds at bay. Yeah. Part of me wonders, like, if we were not all locked in our house right now, would this thing be successful as it is? Uh, I, like, I don't, I'm not too sure. Because, like, I would, I think eventually it would. It'd be, like, a, like a longer curve, you know. But, like, our COVID curve, like, if there was no quarantine, it'd be, like, the flattening of the curve. You know what I'm saying? Can you picture that in your head? <laughs> yes. I can picture But it. if we, since we're in quarantine, we're that big parabola that's like insane. Like all the people watch that at once kind of deal because like we have all the free time. But I do think it would have picked up a lot of numbers eventually. Not all at once, but. Yeah, because all I hear about on Twitter is Joe Exotic, Joe Exotic, Joe Exotic. I got to say, the one episode I've seen, this guy is something else. He, and then he just gets more. It just gets more insane. Like, you think it can't get more insane. But then again, also, like, if you have any idea about Florida, you know, like, that's, like, basically the, you know, this underlying, like, anything from Florida is basically crazy anyway. It's a lawless state in certain ways. So I feel like, you know, that's just, like, the documentary for you. Um, But it's, I thought it was well-perceived. Um some of the stuff in there, I'm like, mm, interesting. There's like some undercover filming kind of deal that I was just like a little like my little red flag went up. I'm like, eh. but then you'll get like you'll see the speedboat or not the speedboat. Um, ah, since I'm not from Florida, I don't know these terms. It's like the jet ski scene. You'll thoroughly enjoy, Mike. <laughs> I cannot wait. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep watching this because I have to like, see like how this train wreck ends because this is just such oh, a dumpster yeah. fire. Just, just keep in mind the only protagonists in this entire entire documentary are tigers and all the poor animals. Just so you know, just like 
I hope people know that like owning animals like that in like bulk is not a great thing to be proud of and everything. Yeah, I was not a big... And also everything can be played can be blamed on Carol Baskin. That's all you'll learn from this, I promise. Yeah, well, I'll I'll definitely find out what's going on. What else is on the Sam streaming queue right now? Ooh, um oh, what is I just I cannot think of words today. Definitely I'm finishing up Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um really enjoy that show. Um I stopped watching it after season 5 and I'm like, "Oh, I don't know why I stopped at all." Um but I definitely once it's over the plot against America is on my watch list. Um, what else? You did mention to me that, um, Whose Line Is It Anyway is new. So that's going to be on my watch list. Oh, Golden Girls. That's another big one, too. So this is for now. This is for April 1st. This is on my quarantine bucket list. Yeah, April 1st quarantine bucket list. I've thrown you a few other suggestions off air. So, like, I'm going to say some of these. I'm going to be doing a, I'm giving my playlist out with the great Alan Pines down the line, but... Next week, we're talking about another item here. John Stanko is coming back on next week. We're going to be talking about McMillions next week. Oh, yes. That's what also is on my list that you mentioned to me the other day. I was like, ah, that sounds so that sounds so interesting. Yeah, all hail HBO, as John likes to say. I'm excited to talk to him next week <laughs> about the West, about all that. And I hear he's watching Westworld, too, so hopefully he'll have an update. on. We can talk about episode four with him next week. Yeah, I'm very interested on his take on Westworld this season. Yeah, because from what I've seen, he's he's all in. I've said I've seen him on Twitter. He's basically like, "This season's great. We're back on track. I'm watching regularly now." Oh, good. I didn't see that tweet, so I was like, "Does he even like it?" Because we have some varying uh, opinions about things, so I always like to make sure that I'm on Stanko's good side. Yeah, you don't want him. You don't want him ripping you on Twitter. It's not fun. No. <laughs> All right, there you have it. Sam DeRosa doing some pop culture, heavy lifting. Thanks again, Sam. Before I let you go, how people follow you on Twitter? Keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, let's just see if I get it right this time. It's at S-D-E-R-O-S-5 on Twitter. And uh, from there, you can find me on basically anything. Just Google Sam DeRosa. (laughs) All right, there you have it. Thanks again, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. All right, and there you have it. That was this week's podcast. I want to thank all our guests this week. First up, Dan Dugan for calling in, from talking about the New York football giants. I also want to thank Phil Freda and Justin Diaz who were on the fan forum, and they also had some interesting stuff to say. I also want to thank Sandra Rosa, our pop culture correspondent, for calling in, talking a little Westworld, a little Tiger King, some other good stuff. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at how the Noah Syndergaard injury will impact the Mets if we have a baseball season, check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify. Search for Just End the Suffering there. Find the podcast on any of those platforms, and you can go back and listen to all our episodes on there. I mean, if you're running out of stuff to watch on TV, I got about 104 episodes of back content there for you. Check it out. You can also search on YouTube, Mike Phillips' YouTube channel, you can check out some I'm putting up individual segments of the podcast. The full episodes are going up on YouTube as well. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings. It's also important for the show. Help me make it even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me at the hashtag, who is Charlotte? We had a fun discussion with Sam about that. Trying to figure out which host is inside the Charlotte host right now. So hashtag, who is Charlotte? 
Next week, we're going to have another sports show. Still trying to decide what direction I want to take that on. I got some ideas for there. Work on some guests, working on some interesting stuff there. But as I mentioned earlier, John Stanka will be here next week. We're going to have some fun with him. But until then, hope you have a better week than Olympic fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.